Trevor, and welcome to Catching Up on Cinema. If you aren't familiar with the program, Catching Up on Cinema is a film analysis podcast wherein we introduce each other to films, expand our cinematic horizons, and, in essence, catch up on our cinema. So, it is the month of September 2023, and we have just reached, as of this recording, uh, the conclusion of Masterclass Month. Uh, Masterclass Month occurs in September's of every calendar year, which just so happens to be our anniversary month uh, here at Catching Up on Cinema. This is us celebrating the completion, I believe, of five years of podcasting. Kind of a big deal, uh, at least to me and to my buddy Kyle, uh, whom I do the podcast with. Uh, and in case you hadn't noticed, uh, Kyle is not with us today. So it's just going to be you and I, dear listener. Hopefully it's not going to be too dreadfully boring or meandering a conversation, a one-sided conversation at that. Um, but today, I'm here to conclude Masterclass Month by talking about the last film uh, in the film franchise uh, that we're doing our Masterclass on this month, uh, and that would, of course, be the Lethal Weapon series of films, uh, all four of which uh, were helmed by Richard Donner, uh, and all four of which star uh, the duo of problematic individual Mel Gibson and a uh, beloved philanthropist slash activist uh, Danny Clover. <laughs> Um, so, of course, uh, to draw things to a close this month, uh, the last film in the series is going to be the subject of uh, today's episode. That, of course, is Lethal Weapon 4, uh, which, of course, was directed by Richard Donner uh, and dropped in the summer of 1998, uh, July specifically of 1998. Um, I like to start things uh, by talking about the, uh, the cast and crew. Uh, more specifically, as we've been uh, talking about the sequels of the Lethal Weapon films, uh, it's been very, very fun for me personally. I can't can't speak for Kyle, but for me, uh, I get a kick out of taking a look at the progression of some of the, the major players in these films, of their careers uh, in film. Uh, it's really interesting to see uh, where what their trajectory is uh, between all the sequels. Uh, so I'll talk about that in just a second, but um, just to set the stage... Um, I will point out that uh, Lethal Weapon 3, uh, the subject of last week's episode, uh, was the, the most profitable. Uh, it, it generated the most box office of any Lethal Weapon film uh, to date. Uh, I, I'll, I'll get to that in a second, but the, the main thing to remember is that Lethal Weapon 3 that came out in 1992, uh, six years earlier, uh, six years prior to the release of Lethal Weapon 4, um, was the most profitable of the entire franchise, um, such that it's actually quite surprising um, that there was such a gap uh, between the massive success of that film in a very successful franchise uh, and the, the production and release of this film. Uh, because prior to Lethal Weapon 3, um, I believe Lethal Weapon 2 only came out two years after the original Lethal Weapon, and then Lethal Weapon 3, I believe, was only three years after Lethal Weapon 2. So we were working on a fairly standardized schedule uh, up until Lethal Weapon 3. Uh, so the, the release gap between 3 and 4 um, is the only unusual major gap, uh, major length of time uh, that transpired between releases of any Lethal Weapon film. Um, it's kind of interesting that it would come on the heels of the most profitable of the entire franchise. But uh, the road to Lethal Weapon 4 uh, was indeed a long one. Uh, the, the way I come to, have come to understand it uh, in the little bit of research that I've managed to do this week, uh, 
reveals that um, one, uh, the script for this thing, um, very much, very similar uh, to the script of Lethal Weapon 3, uh, was a Frankenstein's monster of like five or six different writers' pens, uh, all all working frantically around the clock, scrambling to keep up with the improvisations and random inspirations of both Richard Donner and his cast and crew. Um, apparently, both Lethal Weapon 3 and more, like, especially Lethal Weapon 4, uh, from a scripting standpoint, were held together with fucking scotch tape and popsicle sticks. Uh, it, it, was, it was a mess, a complete fucking mess. And as far as I understand... Uh, from a writing standpoint, because uh, Richard Donner relies so heavily on improvisation and uh, ADR patchwork uh, to keep the film moving and energetic uh, from scene to scene and logical on top of that uh, from a narrative standpoint, because he relies so much on improvisation and all of his actors playing off of each other so beautifully, um, from a writing standpoint, just ideas would probably just get generated on the set and have to be transformed and and altered uh constantly as far as i understand uh, new pages were being generated like every hour <laughs> that, that they were filming this thing um and also uh, just just finding a, a screenplay uh, to serve as as the the framework the skeleton uh, for the beginnings of lethal weapon 4 uh even that uh, was kind of treacherous uh, because as far as i understand um at one point a version of the script that would end up becoming Die Hard with a Vengeance, uh, I think it was called Simon Says, um, was in the hands, was in the possession of producer uh, Joel Silver, who who has worked on both Die Hard and Lethal Weapon. Uh, he has his, his hands in both those co- those gigantic franchise cookie jars. Um, and it ended up being a Die Hard film rather than a Lethal Weapon film. But at one point, that was being considered as the script uh, that would become Lethal Weapon 4. It did not. It ended up becoming Die Hard with a Vengeance instead. Um, and then from a scheduling standpoint, it looked like uh, at one point uh, after the release of Lethal Weapon 3, Mel Gibson wasn't especially interested in continuing the series. Uh, obviously, he changed his mind by the time you get to 1998, but 1993, 1994, it seemed like his head, like his head and his heart just wasn't in it. Um, so it, the, the gap in between three and four seems like a lot of it came down to writing, you know, finding the right script and also finding the right time, uh, for all of the, the major casting components, uh, to have time to jump onto the project. But for what it's worth, um, the script, uh, for Lethal Weapon 4 is attributed to like four or five different people, but just to toss out some names, we have Jonathan Lemkin, Alfred Goh. Miles Miller, um, but uh, a fellow by the name of Channing Gibson uh, is cited by uh, Richard Donner, the director of the film, uh, on the director commentary for the film uh, as being absolutely crucial uh, to, to getting, ultimately getting the film that was shot. Um, but apparently he, he admits to putting the poor guy through the ringer uh, in terms of generating new pages like on a whim every, every hour on the hour. <laughs> Uh, to keep to keep the thing moving, like as amorphous as it may be, but um, anyway, like I said, it, it seems like it was a a difficult process of finding the right time to make this movie because it seemed like from from a producer standpoint, there was interest in uh, in getting this thing made immediately, 
because of course Lethal Weapon 3 was a massive success. Why not strike while the iron's hot? Uh, while it's hottest, in fact. Um, and in fact, I did read that uh, at one point there was plans to do kind of similar to a, a previous uh, Richard Donner project, um, uh, the Superman films uh, produced by the Salkinds back in the 70s. Uh, Richard Donner famously worked on Superman 1 and 2 at the same time. He was fired from Superman 2 mid-production. Um, but that that's a common thing uh, when doing franchise films in Hollywood is if you can help it, it is it is more economically viable to, to shoot both the films at the same time sometimes. And apparently they were toying around with the idea of doing a Lethal Weapon 4 and 5 uh, back-to-back uh, around the mid-90s. But uh, we got what we got, and uh, honestly... I'm happy with it. Uh, we talked a lot about uh, ranking the Lethal Weapon films, uh, Kyle and I. Uh, we've mentioned it probably on every episode this month, um, but just to dispel the mystery right up front while I'm talking about it, uh, I think of as of this recording, uh, my personal ranking, so it's not, <laughs> it's not the be-all, end-all ranking of Lethal Weapon films, but my personal ranking for these films uh, would probably go... Two, four, one, three. Uh, that that's that's how I feel at this very moment, and I think I'm gonna stick with that because, uh, yeah, I, I didn't expect this movie to hold up. Uh, I had I have not seen it in quite a long time. Uh, there was like I did watch it quite often at one point in my life, but there there was a significant gap between my last viewing and the most recent one uh, just the other day. Um, and as I was trying to get in, my, turning it over in my head, like trying to remember the film uh, before I put it on again, I was starting to get worried that I was like, "Oh man, like I, there's there is a chance that this is just a, a meandering collage of scenes that that just doesn't coalesce. Like like it just it's really flimsy and it feels it just feels one like a wandering mess of of just noise." Um, I was really fearful that that might be the case when I when I rewatched the film, but no, uh, it is mostly cohesive. It does have some dalliances where it's it's clearly a little bit self indulgent, but you know it's the fourth fucking film, and it very much feels like it's intended to be the last film. Um, so you know why not take take some of the material for a walk? Why not let let these affable characters just do their thing uh, in front of the cameras for for a couple of extra scenes here and there that don't necessarily need to be there. Um, but yeah, uh, from my standpoint, it is two, four, one, three uh, in terms of my personal ranking of these films. But uh, just to do what I like to do with these uh, with these Lethal Weapon reviews uh, or any, any sequel review, honestly, um, I'm just going to dip into the filmographies of some of the major talents uh, involved in these films, uh, leading like Lethal Weapon 4 specifically, because uh, we do have some new players uh, introduced here uh, that I will, of course, introduce to you um, as I come to them. But uh, just to go over it real quick, um, I'm not going to try to go super detailed here, but um, Richard Donner, our director, uh, he, of course, had, he did all the Lethal Weapon films. So um, 1992. Uh, it's when Lethal Weapon 3 came out. So between 92 and 98, uh, when Lethal Weapon 4 would come out, uh, he would go on to direct Maverick in 1994, uh, which features, of course, Mel Gibson. Um, 
And I, I haven't actually seen that film. I have a friend of mine who really likes it. He's been trying to get me a watcher for a while. Um, I think Danny Glover's in there as well. Um, so I believe he worked with Mel Gibson a half dozen times in his illustrious career. Um, so right after Lethal Weapon 3, he got right back to work with Mel on Maverick, which as far as I know is a well-loved and very successful film. Um, and then really funny one um, that... Uh, Kyle and I have this, this, uh, this phrase we use connections, revolutions, uh, often in reference to, um, people, elements in Hollywood, uh, collaborating with one another, um, across many, many projects and sometimes mediums like, like every, like Hollywood is the, the land of handshakes and, and people like guys, people that, you know. Um, and it's really interesting to see the the collisions that happen. Like it, it's like a, a ping pong ball kind of situation or a pinball kind of situation where it's like you cast somebody's name into the Hollywood pinball machine and it bounces off all these people and makes all these amazing connections. Uh, so the movie that I'm alluding to here is uh, from 1995, uh, Assassins, uh, starring Sylvester Stallone and Antonio Banderas. Uh, also, Julianne Moore is in there. I'm not a huge fan of this movie, even though I, I really do like Sylvester Stallone and Antonio Banderas. And of course, Richard Donner is a fantastic director. But uh, the funny connection here is that this was produced, I believe, by Joel Silver uh, and was uh, maybe the, the feature film uh, directorial debut of the Wachowskis. Um, who would, of course, go on to work once again with Joel Silver on The Matrix, a short four years after Assassins. Um, I forgot that Richard Donner directed Assassins. Uh, but yeah, interesting connection there in the form of a common producer, Joel Silver, and uh, the Wachowskis. Um, 97, Conspiracy Theory, uh, a movie that I believe Kyle has mentioned a few times. I saw it exactly once. Um, I remember the advertising it of it uh, quite vividly um, also headlined by one Mel Gibson uh, so Richard Donner got quite busy uh, between 1992 and 1998 uh, and most of those movies are pretty good uh, as far as I recall um, Maverick in particular Assassins is fine Conspiracy Theory probably also fine so he, he did fine uh, and I believe uh, around this time, he was also actively producing uh, the Tales from the Crypt television series for HBO. Um, moving over to Mel, uh, the major thing, uh, the major change that happened in Mel Gibson's career uh, occurred uh, in the year 1993. Uh, and that would come in the form of him making his directorial debut. Uh, he made a film by the name of The Man Without a Face. Uh, which I have not seen, uh, but it is significant in that it it's the beginning of his uh, second career, essentially, as a director of films, uh, something that he has been very, very successful uh, in, uh, especially from a monetary standpoint, um, if, you, uh, if you factor in the passion and whatnot, um, which I have not seen also. But um, anyway, 1993, he was, uh, I believe he starred in uh, The Man Without a Face um, and, of course, directed as well. Uh, I already mentioned Maverick. That happened the very next year. Uh, and then a real big one uh, for everybody, uh, Braveheart. Uh, Mel Gibson both directed and starred in Braveheart in 1995. Um, so when I said Mel had other things in mind for himself and his career, the man without a face and Braveheart were probably it. Um, 
Uh, apparently, he has a cameo in Casper that I forgot about. Uh, the, um, the Casper the Friendly Ghost. Apparently, he has a cameo in that one that I, like I said, I forgot about that. Um, Pocahontas, he did the voice of John Smith, uh, so that's a, vo- that's a voice-only role. Uh, 1996, uh, Ransom, a gigantic fucking movie. The advertising campaign for this thing was monstrous. It was, it was everywhere. Um, Give me back my son was the catchphrase of 1996, apparently. Um, Very significant to point out is that uh, Rene Russo is also in that film. Uh, So the two of them came together for that film as well. Uh, Father's Day. uh, I haven't seen that one, but it's Billy Crystal and Robin Williams directed by Ivan Reitman. So it can't all be bad. Uh, I I really love both of those performers. Um, Fairy Tale, colon, a true story from 1997. What? Just what? I have no idea what that is. Uh, he has an uncredited cameo in that, and then that brings us to Lethal Weapon 4. So uh, Mel Mel just broke out and, and really became, I guess, closer to what we generally know him to be now. Uh, so the time between Lethal Weapon 3 and Lethal Weapon 4 was some of the most important years uh, in his entire filmography, in his entire career. Uh, so yeah, uh, good on him. Uh, especially from his standpoint, for uh, taking a break uh, on the Lethal Weapon series. Um, As for Danny Glover, uh, Roger Murtaugh himself, um, off of Lethal Weapon 3, uh, he did uh, The Saint of Fort Washington from 1993, uh, starring Matt Dillon and Danny Glover. Uh, Don't know that one. Same with Bofa, uh, directed by Morgan Freeman. Uh, Wow, apparently it was Morgan Freeman's directorial debut, adapted from a play of the same name. Interesting. Not not familiar with it, but that's very interesting to know. Uh, 94, as I said, he does have a role in Maverick. Apparently it's a very small, uncredited cameo, Um, but you know, you do things for your friends. Um, As I understand, he and Richard Donner and Mel Gibson to be. Uh, 94, uh, Angels in the Outfield, uh, he plays the manager of the team in that one. I remember him being uh, very gruff and warm at the same time in that, as he generally tends to be very good at being. Uh, Override is apparently an American science fiction short, never heard of it. Operation Dumbo Drop, I saw that in the theater and have completely forgotten everything about it. Um, but I do remember going out to the theater to see that when I was eight, (laughs) um, Wild America, never saw that one, but apparently he has an uncredited cameo in that. Uh, the Rainmaker is kind of a fun one. Kyle actually mentioned, I think, just last week that uh, he watched that film. Um, and he was very, very surprised uh, to see Danny Glover in there because he wasn't advertised as, uh, I believe he goes uncredited in the cast of that film. Uh, but he plays a very uh, important role in the form of uh, the judge uh, in the major case uh, that most of the film is built around, uh, and he's excellent in that performance. Uh, 1997, really fun one, especially, like I said, from a connections standpoint. Gone Fishing from 1997, uh, also starring Joe Pesci. Uh, so apparently the two of them could tolerate each other enough, or probably liked each other quite a lot, um, and they did a movie together outside of the Lethal Weapon franchise. <laughs> Uh, and then also the same year he did Switchback, which, uh, I, I recognize it to be a thriller film from the late nineties, just based on the poster art. 
Uh, it's got some very, very familiar faces in the cast in the form of Dennis Quaid and Jared Leto, uh, Ted, <laughs> Ted Levine, fuck, um, and William Fickner. Oh, oh yeah, Arlie Hermes in there as well. Very interesting. Uh, never heard of it, though, as far as I know. I know the poster. I've seen it everywhere, but I don't know a damn thing about the movie. Uh, as for Joe Pesci, I uh, did not mention it last week, um, but his, uh, his career took on a, a, a new tenor. Um, in around 1990, uh, between Lethal Weapon 2 and 3. I uh, did not mention it, um, but Home Alone, it's very important to point out, uh, came out in 1990. He also did Goodfellas the same fucking year, so he was he was a big fucking deal. Uh, but more importantly, Home Alone kind of solidified him as being capable of doing many things, not not just being a mafia tough guy. Uh, he, he could also be fucking hilarious in a PG fucking film. Um, Home Alone 2 would come out the same year as Lethal Weapon 3, by the way. Um, so big deal for him. Uh, that movie was probably cleaned up at the box office. I don't know the numbers, but Home Alone was massive. I uh, did A Bronx Tale in 93. I know that's a beloved film in some circles. Haven't seen it myself. Uh, Jimmy Hollywood and With Honors in 1994. That That's one of those movies that has long been on my list of things to watch uh, with honors uh, just just for the cast like look it up uh, look look up all the people in there you'll see what I mean uh, Casino in 95 that's a Scorsese that's a good movie uh, Eight Heads in the Duffel Bag I remember uh, my family flirting with renting that forever uh, just because we all like Joe Pesci and we didn't know a damn thing about it but we saw him on the cover and the title and we're like hmm, maybe <laughs> And then, of course, Gone Fishing in 1997. So he didn't he didn't get up to a whole lot, uh, but there's some super heavy hitters in there in the form of a Scorsese and a Home Alone. So he did quite well for himself as well. Uh, as for Rene Russo, uh, Lorna Cole, uh, she did uh, In the Line of Fire, uh, which is a Wolfgang Peterson film uh, starring Clint Eastwood. Uh, that's a fun one. I, she did Major League Two. She was in the first one as well, I believe. Um, she was in Outbreak, which is based on a Michael Crichton novel, I believe. Uh, that was a big fucking deal movie. Also directed by Wolfgang Peterson, so apparently he could tolerate her or maybe liked her enough to invite her back for another film. Uh, Get Shorty, also in 1995. Uh, that, that was a big-ass movie. That got a huge promotional push. Very successful as far as I know. Uh, Tin Cup. Uh, starring Kevin Costner, Amer America's sweetheart Kevin Costner, middle America's sweetheart Kevin Costner. Uh, she was uh, the female lead in that. Uh, as I said, Ransom in 1996, also a gigantic movie. And then Buddy, uh, aka the Gorilla movie, that I don't remember anything about, if I'm being honest. But I just remember there was a Gorilla movie from that time period. And a lot of... There were a lot of Gorilla movies in the late 90s. I don't know why, but there were. Um, Hollywood has a love affair with apes every every now and again. Um, but yeah, uh, she also didn't do a huge number of movies, but damn, uh, some of the, a lot of those. The ratio is, is quite incredible in terms of like major studio productions um, and other shit. Um, as for new elements of the core cast players, um, really, honestly, there's only two really important ones uh, worth bringing up. Um, but it is worth noting, just like all the other Lethal Weapon films, um, our familiar cast of players uh, do return for Lethal Weapon 4. 
on the form of art director's uh, cousin, I believe, Steve, uh, Steve Cahan, or uh, Steve Kane, I'm not sure on the pronunciation. Uh, he plays the captain. Uh, and of course, all of the Murtaugh family, uh, all, all, all those wonderful actors, they also return as well. Um, also in very small roles, but it's just kind of cool to have have all of them back for every single movie like that's kind of rare that doesn't happen all the time um anyway uh for our new elements though uh we have chris rock uh as i believe it's lieutenant uh, lee butters um he plays uh a, a running gag character um in the form of uh making roger murtaugh very uncomfortable um and also Secretly, he is uh, Roger Murtaugh's eldest daughter, Rianne's uh, husband, uh, and soon-to-be father of her child. Uh, he is. This is him making his debut in the series. Um, from an acting standpoint, uh, Chris Rock had done several film appearances, mostly small ones, uh, prior to 1998. Uh, but he did have a handful of starring roles. Uh, I believe, famously, he was uh, buddies um, with uh, Eddie Murphy. Um, in his more formative years uh, of his career. Um, so it's not surprising that he popped up in Beverly Hills Cop 2 in 1987. Um, he also had a, a role in New Jack City, which is a movie that's on my list of things I gotta watch. He's also in Boomerang, which has some really funny production design. That's like, for some reason, that's the thing I remember most about that movie. Uh, he's in CB4, I believe, in the in the lead role of that film, which is a parody film or like a mockumentary kind of film. Um, and then uh, Sergeant Bilko and Beverly Hills Ninja and Dr. Doolittle all came out just prior to Lethal Weapon 4. But the main thing to, to know is that he had a very, very successful career in stand-up prior to this. Uh, he was also on the cast of Saturday Night Live um, from, I believe, 1990 to 1993. Could be wrong on that, but I do remember it was the early 90s. But uh, from an acting standpoint... Not a whole lot of credits to his name, uh, but he'd been on plenty of like film sets to some capacity prior to this. So it's not like he was making his debut or anything. Uh, but for me, uh, probably obviously to anybody who has been listening to the show for any length of time, of course the, the most significant addition to the cast comes in the form of its villain, uh, who is, of course is played by Jet Li. Um, which this was him making his uh, cinematic debut in the U.S. Um, outside of China. Um, and I've mentioned this on plenty of podcasts before, but there was kind of a situation where a lot of uh, Hong Kong film talent was finding its way over uh, to foreign markets, more specifically the Hollywood system, uh, around the mid-90s through the late 90s and early 2000s. And... Uh, I have to. I have to assume that perhaps Jet Li was kind of roped in with this this wave of talent as well. Um, it is really worth pointing out that uh, Jet Li is himself uh, primarily like a mainland Chinese entity. Um, however, uh, interestingly enough, if you look at his uh, his Chinese filmography, um, the vast majority of the films that he made uh, over there were uh, Hong Kong productions rather than mainland Chinese productions. Um, but funny enough, uh, he does not speak Cantonese to my knowledge. Uh, it doesn't really matter though, because uh, during the years in which he was working in Hong Kong, uh, virtually every performance was dubbed anyway. Uh, so they would dub over him, not a big deal. 
very common practice of the day. Um, but it is kind of interesting to me that uh, when he would return uh, to the Chinese film system, like after he had his amazing run in, uh, in Hollywood um, through a lot of the 2000s, um, a lot of his films ended up being mainland Chinese productions rather than Hong Kong productions. Uh, so it's kind of interesting that the, the way he went about things, where he ended up working in the Hong Kong system, then he went over to Hollywood, and then he went back to essentially his homeland to, to make films for the first time in his native tongue. Very interesting. Um, anyway, he had had a very long career prior to this film, uh, beginning in the early 80s. Uh, he's a contemporary of Donnie Yen, if memory serves, although they didn't work on any movies together uh, until Once Upon a Time in China 2, uh, which... All, I think the first three, maybe four of those movies were directed by Choi Hark, uh, who we have talked about before on this podcast at least once. Um, but yeah, uh, he has credits dating back to the early 80s. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of really popular, really awesome movies on his filmography uh, prior to Lethal Weapon 4, just to toss out a few names. Uh, Born to Defense uh, is apparently... Uh, apparently his directorial debut. I actually didn't know that, but that was 1986. Uh, the Once Upon a Time in China franchise begins in 1991, where he portrays the character of Wong Fei Hong. Uh, deeply beloved series of films, especially that Once Upon a Time in China 2, as I mentioned before. That would be the one where he squares off with Donnie Yen. Uh, they both did a bang-up job with that. Uh, Tai Chi Master, I can I can uh, vouch for the quality of that one. That's a very fun film. Uh, Fong Sayuk, uh, there's a couple of those, I think, and uh, they're very, very good as well. Uh, and Bodyguard from Beijing, that's a fun one. Fist of Legend is a personal favorite of mine. Uh, very much like that one. Um, but uh, Black Mask uh, is especially worth pointing out because that came out in, uh, in China in 1996. However it would not be released in Western territories in the U.S. until after Lethal Weapon 4, until 1999. And this this was a common thing. I mean, we saw the same occurrence in, a, in Jackie Chan's filmography as well, where Rumble in the Bronx came out in, I believe, 1995 in the U.S. And then for the next few years after that, uh, producers and distributors mined the depths of his recent but somewhat earlier filmography to, to for release uh, in the West in the form of things like uh, First Strike and Super Cop and so on and so forth. So this this was not a new thing, um, but it is very worth interest. It's very interesting to me that Black Mask would be three years old uh, by the time it would find its way into American theaters. And I don't even like it that much, if I'm being honest. Um, but yeah, uh, Lethal Weapon 4, as far as I know, uh, is him making his debut uh, in the U.S., uh, in the Hollywood system. And for what it's worth, he doesn't have a whole lot of screen time. He doesn't have a whole lot of dialogue. But that feels intentional, and I feel like he gets quite a lot of mileage uh, out, of the, out of the feet of film that are allotted to him. Uh, I, think, I think the choices made with his characterization and his screen time were correct, because this is an absurdly... Crank, like packed film uh, in terms of the number of cast members and speaking roles and new elements and and all the sh- all the shenanigans going on there are, there are a ton of moving parts and i feel like the the balance of his character's presence in the narrative is such that you never ever forget that he's there you always believe that he's a threat 
and you get you get enough. And I don't feel it's a slight on him at all um, for him to have as little dialogue as he has. I feel like that's actually probably the better way to handle his characters. If you overutilize him, if you make him have speeches or or overexplain himself, or you know even show him on screen doing the things that, the incredible physical feats that he does too often it dispels the mystique it, it takes away some of its sting and its power um so i for one like i don't know if there's anybody out there i haven't checked but i don't know if there's anybody out there who feels like he got i don't know shafted and didn't get enough screen time or or enough depth to his character but i for one think they 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 found a place for him in a very very crowded film and it was enough uh, i was very satisfied with how jetly was utilized in this um and if memory serves, uh, I seem to remember seeing on some uh, behind-the-scenes footage. I'm pretty sure I saw Corey Yuen on the uh, on the set of some of the uh, some of the like physical stunts, uh, some of the shooting of some of the fight scenes and stuff. And I'm not surprised by that at all because he would he would start making uh, American and uh, European films around this time, very shortly thereafter, especially with Jet Li. And the two of them have a working relationship that goes back many years. They, they're very familiar with each other, uh, both as directors and choreographers and actors. Um, so I thought that was really neat. That I don't know if Corey Yuen gets a lot of credit. Like, I don't even know if he's in the credits for the film, but I'm pretty sure I saw him on the set. Um, so I don't know if Jet Li was responsible for that, or I don't know who was responsible for maintaining that partnership uh, for Jet Li's American debut, but good choice. It worked out. Um, anyway, uh, back to the, uh, the overall production. So that's, that's the rundown of the cast. Um, in terms of our, uh, behind the scenes talent, um, I don't have a whole lot to say about this and I will get to the film in just a second, but, um, our, uh, composer, composers i guess uh return for this film and if you ask me uh they did a bang up job uh, michael kamen or My michael kamen not positive on the pronunciation uh, always loved him as a composer uh worked on the entirety of the lethal weapon franchise uh and if you ask me uh, his score for lethal weapon 4 is one of the most varied and dynamic of the entire franchise a very worthy addition uh, to the collection of scores across all of these films and of course, he brought Eric Clapton and David Sanborn with him on guitar and uh, saxophone, uh, respectively. Uh, I wasn't positive if they were involved, if that pair of musicians was involved in all of the Lethal Weapon films, but I can confirm now. Yes, they were. And they did a great job. Uh, only other behind-the-scenes uh, talent that I really want to point out um, is, uh, well, I have a couple here. <laughs> um, one, Lance Gilbert is apparently Mel, Gib Mel Gibson's stunt double. Um, I only toss that out there because uh, the <laughs> the amount of obvious doubling uh, on the like in watching the Blu-ray version of the film at home uh, is very apparent, um, very obvious and apparent throughout quite a lot of the film. Uh, <laughs> so, Lance Gilbert, uh, congratulations! You are seen and recognized for quite a lot of the film. Um, Richard Greenberg is a name that I didn't mention on last week's episode, but, uh, he did the opening titles, uh, for Lethal Weapon 3. That would be the, uh, the gasoline fire, um, and the, uh, 
like the the giant flaming three for the lethal weapon um he did the whole uh sting song opening sequence the it's probably me song with the with the fire um he did that opening sequence and he also did the ending credits sequence for this film um which i really really love uh, so it's worth pointing out he did that apparently he's a director in his own right and a very good one uh, according to richard donner on the commentary uh, last fella is uh, Andre Bartkowiak. Finally got confirmation on the pronunciation of that name. I wasn't sure if it was Andrew or Andre, but it is apparently Andrew Bartkowiak. Uh, he uh, serves as the DP for this film, uh, the cinematographer slash director of photography. Um, highly experienced cinematographer, and I have a particular fascination with him uh, that I... I I have to assume not everybody has, but from it's very specific to me uh, because a lot of the movies he's directed deeply fascinate me <laughs> uh, because he's he is an excellent DP. Uh, he has worked on some he's worked with some incredible talent. Uh, just to toss out some names, Sidley, Sidney Lumet, uh, John Huston. I uh, worked with Sidney Lumet extensively, by the way. Uh, Ivan Reitman. He shot Twins. Uh, Joel Schumacher, he shot Falling Down. Uh, William Friedkin, he shot Jade. Uh, Jade, excuse me. Um, he shot fucking Species. Uh, probably most importantly, uh, he... Uh, most important, excuse my shitty English. Uh, he shot Speed. Uh, Jan de Bont, the Dutchman, the Flying Dutchman, uh, he famously shot Lethal Weapon 3. I did mention that last week. Who, and he would go on to direct Speed just a few short years later. I believe that was his directorial debut. And wouldn't you know it, the DP for his directorial debut would end up being the DP for the next Lethal Weapon. So uh, connections, revolutions. So he got, he, Jan de, I wouldn't be surprised if Jan DeBont uh, recommended Andrew Barkowiak to Richard Donner or something along those lines. Um but uh, as a director, Andrew Barkowiak is responsible. He's this man is responsible for something that I like to call the Kung Fu hip hop connection, which was a it was a subgenre or a phenomenon. I don't know what the fuck you want to call it. A trend. Let's call it a trend um, in Hollywood history from the late 90s through the early 2000s. I don't think it made it beyond the mid 2000s. But it was this thing where I noticed that like Hollywood studios seem to be really trying to make this happen, where it's like, we're trying to take the world of hip-hop and combine it with the world of martial arts. And so he, this is the man, this man responsible, because he shot Lethal Weapon 4, which of course features uh, Jet Li. It's not a Kung Fu hip-hop connection film, but it is the film that introduced us uh, to Jet Li over here in the U.S., um, and then if he would go on to direct, again, starring Jet Li, Romeo Must Die in the year 2000. He would go on to direct Exit Wounds in the year 2001, featuring Steven Seagal, <laughs> war criminal slash uh, terrible human being, a problematic individual, excuse me, Steven Seagal and DMX. And then Cradle to the Grave is probably the big one, uh, 2003, featuring DMX probably actually in the starring role. Oh yeah, and Jet Li's here, along with the entirety of the 2003 UFC organization. The man also directed Doom, Street Fighter Colin, The Legend of Chun-Li, Maximum Impact, 
and Dead Reckoning from the year 2020, which is in fact a Scott Atkins film. Uh, I have a particular fascination with Andre Barkowiak, excuse me. Uh, I'm sure none of you all listening do, um, but it's a project for another day, perhaps. Um, anyway, let's get to the fucking movie. So I'm going to try my best to just blaze through this as fast as I can, because uh, it is just me, and I'm probably going to blow out my throat by the end of this episode. Uh, so our film begins with a fireball. Uh, displaying the Warner Brothers logo, we get a fiery title drop, A Lethal Weapon 4, just in case you didn't know what movie you were watching. And uh, the first image we're presented to after the titles is Riggs and Murtaugh, Driving in the Rain. And uh, we have a little fun wordplay here, a little, a little just cheeky humor in the form of uh, our two heroes uh, bantering between each other. As they do rapid fire throughout the entirety of this film, I find it very enjoyable. I could, I could see how some folks would find it grating. Um, I don't know what it is about these two actors, but the two of them playing off of each other to me is something that I can, I can enjoy, uh, till the end of time, essentially. Like, I just like watching these guys riff off of each other. Um, so I, I fully concede that this is not for everybody. I could totally see some people being completely, uh, annoyed by this. I like it. Anyway, uh, I mentioned there was a cheeky humor here, wordplay in the form of, uh, Riggs and Murtaugh driving around in the rain, apparently looking for some sort of disturbance in the middle of downtown L.A. Uh, and Mel mentions, uh, we must be getting warmer. Uh, and sure enough, they happen upon the disturbance, and it is a man in full-ass body armor with a flamethrower and a stout uh, assault rifle, essentially. Like a, like a sawed-off sub... Like, submachine gun or assault rifle or some some kind of carbine something or other um but the point is he is covered head to toe in a goddamn iron man suit brandishing a flamethrower and a machine gun um and of course our hero's plan is is to approach him in the most unsubtle manner by attempting to run him over uh riggs and murtaugh uh geniuses the mental giants um but very importantly they introduce uh kind of a it may have been sprinkled throughout the earlier films but it's more greatly emphasized uh in this film uh if in fact it was mentioned the other ones uh willing something uh this this is a a kind of a recurring recurring element of the script of this film is is riggs and murtaugh willing something so they they repeat something in like kind of like a mantra-esque manner um, and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but it's introduced here at the very, very, very beginning of the movie, which is kind of interesting by the time we get to the end of it. Um, but the two of them go back and forth repeating the phrase, like, like Riggs is of course the one to get the ball rolling, but he, he ropes, uh, Murtaugh into it as he tends to do. Um, and he says, Raj, we, we got to will him to not turn around. Like, and so the two of them just keep, keep repeating themselves. Like we, we, we will you to not turn around. We, we are willing you to not turn around. The guy turns around, of course, uh, as they get close to him with the car, uh, they jump out of the car. He sets it on fire and shoots the fuck out of it. And we have, uh, kind of, I feel like this is like a Richard Donner ism, like a, a trademark of his, um, it, important snappy dialogue happening in the midst of an action or sequence or a shootout of some sort um it's especially apparent in this film uh, because as actually from a structural standpoint it's kind of interesting because we kind of begin this movie the same way we end it um 
things that you reckon things that draw attention to themselves when you're talking about a movie uh, into a microphone um, you're talking about a movie that you just watched the other day um, so yeah they're they're huddled behind their car as it's being set on fire and shot at and it's during this instance that they discover one uh, they can shoot him all they like but his, he's so armored that they can't penetrate it or or kill him they can they can stop him briefly by like discombobulating him but they can't kill him or stop him um so in between uh, dumping rounds into him and reloading uh, it's in this instance probably i don't know adrenaline dump or uh, i don't know uh, fear being fearful that he might die <laughs> um so he needs to get this out now uh murtog tells riggs uh, that Warna, Warna Cole, that would be Rene Russo from the third film, uh, Mel Gibson's love interest from the previous film, uh, is pregnant. And Riggs apparently didn't know that. Uh, so to reciprocate, Riggs tells Murtog that, hey, your eldest daughter, Rianne, is too. Uh, he, he's hesitant to do so, but, you know, he probably has that vibe too that's like, you know, we're getting shot at a lot, and I don't know how to stop this guy, so there is a chance we both die, so mate what could it hurt to let him know uh, of course Murtog is furious because that's his default setting anytime something rubs him the wrong way um, and he does mention that Rianne isn't married yet which apparently bothers him he is a man of an older generation it makes sense kind of kind of socially conservative fella backup arrives and they instantly get fucked up I don't think any of them get killed um, but it is kind of cute to see actual backup arrive in a lethal weapon film for one that doesn't happen ever really uh nor does it ever get called um but they they pull up to this guy with this flamethrower and this machine gun and they their car just instantly gets set on fire and blown to shit it's kind of great uh we have a pov shot of the gunman um and we get a pov shot from inside his his like welder's mask essentially uh he, he has a helmet that looks like a welder's mask and uh he is he has a tape player he has a, like a walkman uh, blasting some kind of butt rock um, that some some song about fire uh, and then of course he, he like gives like a like a like a viking cry like a yeah and then shoots out some more flames it's pretty great it's like this man is nuts that's basically what we have zero character characterization for this individual they will be dead soon but the point is we get none and yet that one instance of him of seeing the world through his eyes and hearing the music that he's listening to as he's having a fucking firefight with random people in the streets is all the characterization you need. Uh, this this guy is absolutely nuts, uh, and he's apparently in his glory in this moment. Um, we, <laughs> we have a funny line from uh, from Riggs and Murtog, where Murtog, uh, amidst all the gunfire, uh, just tosses out the phrase, is he black? Um, to which... Uh, Riggs responds by uh, reloading his pistol and responding, too much armor on, I can't tell. And it's like, no, he's he's asking about the person who fathered his uh, his grandchild, but that, that was clever. That made me laugh. Um, so we come up with a plan. Uh, and the plan is uh, Riggs needs Raj to distract the armored gunman. Um, and he quickly comes up with an idea. He says, hey, Raj, I, I need you to distract the guy, so I can get him to turn. I need him to turn so I can get a shot on the valve of the uh, flammable liquid tank on his back. Uh, that seems to be, you know, the only vulnerable spot that we have available to us in this instance. Very, 
very much like a boss fight from a video game or something. Uh, so he tells Raj, strip naked, or at least down to your, your undies, and, or your boxer shorts with, with little hearts on them, uh, and run out from behind the car dancing like a chicken. And, uh, you know, Roger, he, he doesn't have a counteroffer, so he's like, okay, let's go do it. Uh, so we get to see Danny Glover in his underwear and his boxer shorts, and he does a little chicken dance. And sure enough, the dude pauses for a second and turns, because, I mean, I would too. Shit, that's not something you see every day. Uh, and uh, Riggs takes this opportunity to shoot the valve, uh, which causes a delightful chain of events. Um, truly stunning effects and stunt work here. So the valve uh, blows off, uh, turns his uh, flammable liquid tank into essentially a jetpack, uh, very similar to Boba Fett, uh, if you've seen Return of the Jedi, uh, because he goes fucking flying, uh, or the Rocketeer, I guess, if we're talking 90s films. Um, we do get a Wilhelm scream over him flying through the air, and he slides across the pavement uh, into a gas station, uh, into the undercarriage of a gasoline tanker, uh, which then causes the entire gas station to explode in a gigantic fireball, uh, which launches said tanker truck into the air. And then the, 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 the icing on the cake, the cherry on top, is uh, we cut to a shot of our two heroes in the rain running away from their car uh, as we see the tanker, uh, the flaming tanker, excuse me, uh, drop drop down onto, uh, I presume, Murtaugh's car. Uh, spectacular effects work and stunts uh, throughout a lot of this movie, but as, a, as an opening action beat, this is pretty fantastic. Like, it, it makes no goddamn sense, but we got some storytelling in there, uh, and the effects work was good. It was entertaining as shit. Um, and then uh, our two heroes walk away from uh, the fiery crime scene, and uh, we see... Uh, Mel put his arm around uh, Danny Glover's back, to which he responds by sl slapping his hand away and saying, hey, don't put your arms around me when I'm naked. And it's like, ah, put, put a pin in that for his characterization later on in the film. Uh, we get an on-screen title that reads, Almost Nine Months Later. And we cut to uh, the Code 7, which is apparently, uh, I don't know if it's the same boat that a uh, Murtaugh had in the earlier Lethal Weapon films, but I think he uses the phrase my new boat or something, but it's the Code 7 is the name of his fishing boat and we're out on the water uh, Riggs, Murtaugh, and Joe Pesci's uh, Leo Getz uh, he came out with them who knows why uh, especially the way they treat him, but hey you know, Leo is a character I like Leo as a character, I know he can be annoying, that's the point point. Um, and I, I feel like he uh, he earns his place in every film that he's featured in. Like, I feel like he justifies his, his need to be in the film. Uh, mostly <laughs> like, like, especially in this one though. I do like, I do like some of Joe Pesci's material in this one, especially by the time you get the end of it. Um, it is worth noting. Apparently both he and Chris Rock, um, were not included in early drafts of the script for Lethal Weapon 4. They were written in later, um, and as a result, drove up the cost of the film quite significantly. Um, also worth noting that I probably should have mentioned at the very top of this, uh, this podcast, um, the production schedule for this film was kind of nuts. Um, sounded like they had enough time to shoot it. Like it sounded like they had sufficient time for production. 
Um, but the director, Richard Donner, was uh, keen on pointing out multiple times on the commentary that uh, their post-production was barely a month. Like all of all of their editing and post-production was was performed like inside of like a calendar month or something. Like it was it was absolutely bonkers how quickly the project came together once it started rolling. Which is kind of staggering, uh, considering like if you ask me, the the overall quality of the end product. It's like yeah, it, especially from an editing standpoint, because there, there are instances of some really 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 good editing in this film. If you ask me, um, yeah, uh, impressive stuff. Uh, very much worth pointing out. Um, so uh, our heroes, as we said, they're on the boat, the Code Seven, and once you know it, they caught a goddamn shark. Uh, and Leo wants to shoot the shark, uh, so he's going for he's reaching for a handgun somewhere uh, in the cabin. Uh, meanwhile, uh, Riggs and Murtaugh are uh, talking to each other uh, alone. They have a, a quiet moment alone uh, when Leo is not around them. That's the only way to get a quiet moment. Um, and Riggs admits that he hasn't moved on from his dead wife. Basically, the subject of marriage comes up because, as I said. Murtaugh being, you know, more of a socially conservative individual, he's like, eh, you got, you got a pregnant girlfriend, live-in girlfriend, uh, you've been together a long time, why don't you just get married? Uh, and Riggs' response to that is that, eh, yeah, you know, maybe she wants that, I, you know, I like the idea of that, but I'm also kind of like, part of me isn't ready for that. <laughs> I do like the bit where uh, Leo gets pissed about all the... <laughs> Everything gets fucking nautical, uh, is, how he, is how he puts it. All the nautical terminology, like the word aft, is is tossed at him. And his response is just to roll his eyes and say, and that's a fucking word. And it's like, you know, yeah, I, I've, I mean, as a person who's never spent any length of time at sea, uh, I've never had to use the word aft in, a, in daily speech. Um, so, yeah, I could, I could see a landlubber like Leo uh, being... A little irritated by that. Anyway, as I said, Leo wants to shoot the shark. Uh, our heroes learn that he is a, a private investigator now. Put a pin in that because it is. It does. Believe it or not, Richard. I don't know if this is also a Richard Donnerism, but some of the the tightness of the scripting of this movie is somewhat impressive. Like like when I was taking notes watching the film, I was like. You know, a lot of that feels like just extraneous mouth noise on the part of these actors, but it's like, you know, I I understand why almost every line in the movie is here. Like, there is, you know, there is some fat that perhaps could be trimmed in the form of, like, vamping and just, like, improvised humor and whatnot, but, like, in terms of the driving logic moving us from scene to scene and making sure that the characters have the information they need in order for the story to get where it needs to get from moment to moment the movie the movie has like if it's like a, a ship with holes in it like it they did a bang up job plugging those holes i'm sure it has plenty of them but they did a fantastic job finding most of them and plugging them up um so leo is a pi put a pin in that put a hole in that uh, and then plug it uh so uh, a giant boat a freighter essentially a chinese freighter uh, rolls in right behind them as they're talking about shooting the shark uh, and we hear gunshots and immediately we break out into an action scene wherein uh, our heroes in the code 7 boat uh, they pursue the freighter uh, by the way uh, from an effects standpoint 
Apparently this uh, dilapidated Chinese freighter uh, had no engine and thus every time it was seen moving on camera it was being towed by a tugboat. Uh, I thought that was kind of cute. Uh, and apparently uh, the driver of it fucked up at least once and almost uh, like did actually collide with the Code 7. So that was, that was interesting to learn. Also interesting to learn via the director's commentary, Jeff fucking Johns. Uh, is I think he's an uncredited producer on the film, but he's in the room with Richard Donner during the commentary track for the film, during the recording of the commentary track, and I think you can hear him speaking occasionally. Um, if you're not familiar, dear listeners, uh, Jeff Johns, at one point, I don't believe he is now, but at one point, he was the head of DC Warner Brothers Creative, uh, probably the same role that James Gunn occupies currently. Um Highly prolific uh, DC Comics uh, writer uh, did a did some of the most important work on Green Lantern within the past couple of decades. Um, loves his DC Comics villains, that's for fucking sure. Um, yeah, gigantic entity, like titan of of DC Comics, um, and DC and Warner Brothers go way fucking back. So I did not know that he was a he was a film producer as far back as the late 90s but um yeah it was kind of sh- i was taken aback i was like what did that jeff johns like my jeff johns the the, fi- the the fucking guy whose comics i was reading when i was in fucking college wow uh, wild stuff um yeah he's he's involved in the production uh uncredited producer i think is is his official title but he, apparently he did he paid in enough money to be in the room during the recording of the fucking commentary um so we are in the midst of pursuing this Chinese freighter. Uh, we are shown that Riggs uh, has a laser beam. He has a laser pointer now affixed to his uh, his trademark uh, Beretta M92F. Uh, he demonstrates so by pointing the laser in fucking Leo's face. Uh, not not cool. Um, Raj radios the Coast Guard. Hey, he called for backup. Um, I mean, our characters are supposed to be more matured, supposed to be more matured by this point in the franchise. So yeah, of course he would call for backup. Not something they did a lot in those earlier films. Um, And we attempt to flash our badges to the freighter as we're pursuing it. Um, But instead, uh, some some fellas on the deck of the freighter uh, just straight up open fire at the small fishing boat trailing them. Uh, Riggs fires back, kills a couple of them, and also sets fire to the ship via shooting explosive barrels uh, on the deck of the ship. Uh, Again, very video game-like. It's like, shoot the red barrel! That's the only way to take out the ship. Um, We get a fun little bit where Riggs jumps to the freighter um, while Raj backs him up, and there's a lot of banter between all of our heroes and uh, Mel Gibson doing some live stunt work while uh, carrying a gun prop in his mouth. Kind of fun, swashbuckling-esque stunt work uh the freighter runs aground at one point um and uh a flaming barrel shoots off of the deck and collapses on top of the code seven thereby sinking murtaugh's boat uh the murtaugh family has horrendous luck uh, when it comes to uh the survival of their vehicles uh vehicles in that family just they just they just, they just don't last man uh, we get to see Riggs kill a dude with a ricochet. Uh, it's a cute little thing where he uses like the reflection of his uh, his beam, his uh, laser pointer, uh, to shoot a guy in the back and then shoot him in the chest. Uh, the shark, meanwhile, <laughs> comes after uh, Murtaugh and Leo. Just it's 
interesting because it feels stupid, but it's like a, from an editing standpoint, it's a quick and efficient way of reminding the viewer, oh yeah, they're here too. They're not doing anything important, but it's just like something for them to be doing. Um, some some way in which they can be occupied and we can isolate rigs, which is actually kind of important for this scene. Um, also, cute little detail I learned from the commentary. Uh, Joe Pesci, not especially comfortable in the water. Apparently they had to film uh, his scenes in the water uh, in a tank of some sort. Um, I believe they were actually out on the water uh, for all the stuff where he was dry, but when he goes into the water, I think they had to film that in a tank uh, because he was not comfortable. Like He was fearful of drowning, essentially. I think it was in like four feet of water uh, where he was okay. Um, interesting. Didn't know that. Um, <laughs> uh, so we cut to uh, the deck of the freighter, and this is where Trevor gets to have some fun uh, because... I've mentioned on many of the uh, previous uh, Lethal Weapon episodes um, some some of the some of the goons, uh, some of the expendable bad guys uh, featured not not extensively, but just in like included in the cast of the Lethal Weapon films is. It, it's like a incredible rogues gallery. Like it's, it's a, for lack of a better term, it's a goddamn murderer's row of familiar character actor faces, like guys who play heavies. And uh, this film is no exception. In fact, in terms of like sheer numbers of, of appearances in stunt roles and accolades, uh, this film might like apologies to Sven Oli Thorson, um, and Nick Chinlin from the previous film. Uh, th this movie may take the cake for, like, perhaps most distinguished cast of, quote, anonymous goons. Those guys who you know their face, you don't know their name, but if you're as obsessive about this kind of stuff as I am, you do know their name. So I'll, I will tell you some of their names, uh, starting uh, with one James Liu, uh, who I, he plays the captain in this film. Uh, so this is where he makes his appearance in this film. Uh, and he has a brief scuffle with Martin Riggs. Uh, he kicks the shit out of Martin Riggs. Um, and it's important from a character standpoint. Uh, because remember, this is Lethal Weapon 4. Uh, Murtog has been saying since Lethal Weapon 1, uh, I am either I am too old for this shit or I am getting too old or I am getting too old for this shit. Um, so that's something that should be apparent across the entire franchise. And they actually do kind of like follow through on that in this one and address it that Danny Glover and Mel Gibson are actually getting older now. The characters that they're playing are perhaps even older than what they actually are. So this is the movie where they finally attempt to explore that and actually add that as an, as an additional layer to their characterization where it's like these guys are losing a step perhaps they are like or are becoming too old for this shit uh, so this is the movie where Riggs loses some fights Riggs gets the shit kicked out of him sometimes and doesn't really get a chance to redeem himself um, so we, to start the movie this way with him fighting James Liu uh, who is a, a titan of the American stunt world, like the, the Hollywood stunt world. This man has worked on every production under the sun. 
uh, continues to work on every production under the sun. Uh, has actual acting chops, like has some really good face acting. Occasionally he has speaking roles. He was, I believe, actually kind of funny in Hot Shots Part Deux. Uh, he's he's the guy that uh, Charlie Sheen has the uh, the fight with uh, at the beginning of that film. Uh, titan of the stunt world, uh, the American stunt world in particular. Uh, and yeah, uh, he gets to have a brief scuffle here with uh, with Riggs, kicks the shit out of him. I do love that uh, when we cut back to Murtaugh and Leo, uh, there's there's some hilarious ADR of Murtaugh yelling uh, about all of, like all the shit that like has gotten blown up or destroyed that used to belong to him, like his like a part of my house and my fucking car, my wife's car, my boat, and <laughs> and Leo just follows it up by like saying like yeah I think that's about it right. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, we cut back to Riggs and he uh, investigates the hold of the freighter after James Liu's uh, captain has escaped. Uh, and he finds a cluster of immigrants uh, stowed away uh, in the in the cabin of the freighter. Cut away to uh, introduction of Uncle Benny, um, who I believe is played by was it Kim Chan or is it, yeah Kim Chan? Uh, he plays Uncle Benny, uh, who is our resident uh, human trafficker slash smuggler. Not a, like as funny as he is, not a good guy. Um, and also we're introduced to, not properly, but uh, it's kind of, this This is what I'm talking about with the way Jet Li is showcased pretty well in this film, despite limited screen time and very little dialogue. We get introduced to Uncle Benny, as well as uh, Jack Kaler, or Jack Keeler, um, who is a weaselly looking guy who is, uh, I believe he he's in The Big Lebowski. Uh, he's the guy who they go to see his uh, stage production or whatever, and it's just a bizarre something, experimental something or other. Uh, instantly recognizable face. Um, anyway, uh, he is there. He's presented some uh, counterfeit visas, essentially, uh, for a group of four Chinese men uh, to be brought into the United States. And everything about his positioning in the room and the fact that he's doing all the talking suggests that Uncle Benny... Uh, is in charge of this operation. However, uh, kind of just lurking in the shadows just over his shoulder is, you know, diminutive little Jet Li. A handsome, like devilishly handsome Jet Li. Just kind of standing off to the side. And he and Uncle Benny exchange a few words, I believe in Mandarin. I'm not sure. Uh, I, I assume Jet Li actually spoke Mandarin for this film. Um, and instantly the demeanor between the two of them suggests that despite Uncle Benny being the senior between the two of them, despite him conducting all the deals, he is deferential to Jet Li, uh, to his character Wasing Ku. Uh, I thought those I thought that played very, very well, despite the limited amount of material uh, actually expressed or exposited, I guess. Um, anyway, long story short, Jet Li pressures Uncle Benny to find, quote, the family. Um, and that's that's kind of the neat part about the way Jet Li's uh, plotline in this film is interwoven between all the the shenan like all the Riggs and Murtaugh shenanigans is we we can easily piece it together, but we're only given slivers of information at a time. Uh, very interesting the the flow of information relayed to us uh, for his subplot. Um, Anyway, uh, we actually get to follow that Jack Kaler or Jack Keeler fella, the guy with the visas. Um, we follow him to a, a, a train crossing wherein he is 
uh, pushed in front of a his vehicle uh, is pushed in front of a moving train which collides with his car and kills him uh, as he's counting his money and we see that uh, Jet Li uh, was in the car that pushed his pushed that fellow's car onto the tracks so he's Jet Li's a bad guy in this in case you didn't know uh, so we cut back to the freighter and uh, we're we have like a, like a huge gathering of Coast Guard officials here. Um, and they're essentially taking everybody into custody. Um, <laughs> Richard uh, Real or Richard Riley, um, you'll, you'll recognize him as uh, one of the major cast members of uh, Office Space. Uh, he has a spiel, uh, like an unsympathetic spiel uh, towards the plight of these uh, immigrants and stowaways, uh, which Murtaugh doesn't he doesn't especially appreciate. Uh, we're introduced uh, to Lee Butters, uh, so that'd be Chris Rock, and uh, he he has this whole tirade where he is super fucking pissed to find a dead guy, um, and something about the, the the comedic timing of the cutting back and forth between him on his knees, just like cussing his brains out uh, about this anonymous fellow who got shot. And uh, Riggs and Murtaugh just kind of like shrugging and obviously being kind of cold and just wanting to go home. Like it's cold blooded, but for some reason it's just kind of fun. It's a funny visual to me. Um, anyway, uh, we get a uh, Riggs saying goodbye to, to Raj. Uh, he attempts to apologize for his boat, but he can't finish the sentence without breaking out into laughter, which of course pisses off Raj. Um, I like the bit where Leo is being interviewed by the media, and uh, he <laughs> he drops a pretty obvious f bomb on camera, and uh, he actually asks permission. Like he's like, "Can I say that on camera?" And they're like, "Absolutely not. We'll have to edit it out." And so he reiterates it. He says, "This big darn shark comes along." He said, "Big fucking shark" is what he said originally. Um, anyway, uh, Roger finds uh, important characters to the plot: the Hong family. Uh, hiding under a tarp uh, in a rowboat on the shore and we cut away from that so he found some people that the Coast Guard had yet to discover uh, put a pin in that so uh, we actually get introduced to Riggs's house which was and I think I mentioned this last week uh, shot and intended to be featured in Lethal Weapon 3 uh, because remember in Lethal Weapon 2 it's the continuity between these films is kind of remarkable like the attention to detail is well, much appreciated. Like it, it's really neat that they retain so many of the cast members, and also just so many of the just esoteric little details. Um, because if you remember, uh, towards the conclusion of Lethal Weapon Two, uh, Riggs is still living in a trailer on the beach, which gets completely shot to shit. Um, and in Lethal Weapon Three, it isn't in the film, but there is a deleted scene of his home being rebuilt. So he has, an, I presume, a new trailer or at least one that's been patched up. And uh, McGee, the carpenter, is in the process of building a housing, like a house-like structure on top of the trailer. So it's like an extension of the trailer. Um, and as I said, that that's a deleted scene in the third film, but it's here where we were actually officially introduced to it. It looks very similar to the way it did in Lethal Weapon 3. And as soon as Riggs comes in, uh, we see Lorna is very much pregnant. Remember, this is almost nine months later. Um, and uh, the esoteric details, the, the small details that I was referring to, um, two dogs are in the trailer. 
and they have no attention paid to them. Like the camera doesn't ever linger on them, but there are two dogs, one of which is a collie of some sort that I presume is still Sam the dog from the very first film, like dating back to the very first film. Um, and there's a Rottweiler as well, which Riggs and Lorna, uh, more, more accurately, I guess, Riggs acquired uh, in the middle of Lethal Weapon 3. Uh, so he he kept him, and and like I said, these two dogs are just in the room for the scene. The camera never lingers on them or makes a big deal of them, but apparently that was something that Richard Donner felt needed to be there, and I I appreciate it. It's like what happened to that dog? It's like oh he still has him, cool. Um, anyway, the two of them have lovely interplay between each other, like you know lovey dovey, like live in live in girlfriend boyfriend kind of rapport. Uh, Lorna has finished building up the nursery in the house slash trailer. Uh, Riggs floats the idea of marriage, and they both wuss out. Like, they both completely botched having an actual conversation about it. Uh, so they move on to breakfast of donuts and cereal. It is here where an additional subplot is introduced in the form of Ebony Clark novels. Uh, Lorna is reading a, uh, a smutty romance novel by a novelist by the name of Ebony Clark, which seems like a needless little detail, you know, just like a, a little funny bit of dialogue or something. But no, it's it's not entirely a throwaway gag. Uh, we actually don't get the resolution of that until the very end of the movie. But again, put a pin in that. So we move on to something I like to call beach talk. And this is essentially... Uh, a sequence where in uh, Riggs and Lorna they walk on the beach together uh, side by side so it's like camera one camera two like her her shot his shot kind of situation uh, from a cinematography standpoint it's nothing complex but it's a walk and talk um, so we get uh, Lorna mentioning that she heard from internal affairs her department at the police station that uh, Raj Murtaugh is suspected to be on the take um, and Riggs pesters her about this, um, and she tells him like, "Don't, don't let him know that that I know that or that I told you about that." So she, basically, she says, "Keep that shit under your hat." Of, yeah, Riggs is going to do that. That that's him to a T. Um, and she also pesters him until she tells him that uh, Butters, Lee Butters, uh, Chris Rock, is the one who both impregnated Rianne and also secretly married her uh, before ever meeting or like officially introducing himself uh, to her dad. Uh, so apparently the rest of the Murtaugh's know him and have met him and like him, uh, but dad is in the dark about it. And of course, Lorna pro promised, like makes Riggs promise not to spill the beans, not to let anyone know that he knows that. Um, I do like the bit where she makes him do like a scout's honor, like like put his hand up and swear, and, and he puts up his left hand. She's like, no, right hand, like like don't give me none of that bullshit. It's it's a cute little scene. It's it's brief and it communicates quite a lot. Uh, it it introduces two new subplots essentially. Roger's on the take. Roger doesn't know that Butters, who he feels awkward around, is his son-in-law. Stuff stuff that will pay off later. So we cut to the Murtaugh house. Uh, Riggs very nearly spills the beans about uh, Butters being uh, Roger's uh, son-in-law. Excuse me. Uh, Riggs and Lorna discover the Hong family in Murtaugh's kitchen. So he he takes like a few minutes to attempt to uh, not 
like not let them find them. Um, but of course, they you know nosy individuals that they are, detectives that they are. In fact, uh, it doesn't work out. They push their way into his home, and uh, they find the Hong family clustered around the kitchen table. Uh, and Roger introduces everybody, uh, and also as they're leaving the house uh, after after meeting the Hongs, uh, Raj ha- like hands over wads of cash. Uh, to his youngest kids, uh, so that would be Nick, his son, um, and I actually forget the name of his el- uh, youngest daughter. Uh, but he gives them wads of cash right, right in Riggs's like line of view. So remember, Riggs has been informed that Raj is being suspected of being on the take. So he's like, hmm. I, I think he directly questions him. He's like, uh, did we get a raise and I didn't know about it or something? <laughs> Basically, where's the money coming from? But of course. Murtaugh dodges the question. Um, Rihanna arrives, does her thing where she accidentally bops uh, Riggs. She does that a lot across these movies and also kisses him on the lips. She does that a lot across these movies. Um, they've always kind of had that thing going on where it's like at any time, if they wanted to, they they could hit the accelerator on that relationship. It's it's very good that they didn't, but it, you could tell it, it's it's always been something that every writer that's touched the series has probably considered at some point of having Rhiannon and Riggs become a thing or something. Um, but yeah, he very nearly uh, spills the beans once again. So that's 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 Riggs. Uh, don't tell him any secrets. He will fuck with you. Uh, he will fuck with your life. Uh, even, even if you don't tell him secrets, Rig, just if Riggs is in your life, he's going to fuck with it. Uh, so we go to the police station. Uh, and I believe they said on the commentary this is the same set uh, as was featured in Lethal Weapon 2 maybe even Lethal Weapon uh, Lethal Weapon 3 for sure maybe even Lethal Weapon 2 Uh, so everybody is has apparently been teasing Murtaugh for 9 months about 9 months uh, by posting uh, like posting up on a bulletin board uh, a news article with a photo of him uh, dancing in the rain in his uh in his boxer shorts and he's getting fucking tired of this shit and we see that every time he takes it down Riggs puts it back up uh behind his back um uh, which is delightful um we do get some mention of our cast getting older uh in the form of our heroes going to have an audience with the captain steve cahan our director's cousin um, the, the captain actually has a spiel where he's he's talking about all, like there's a new generation of detective. A lot of them have like psychology degrees and they're better qualified in a different they're differently qualified uh, than us dinosaurs used to be. Uh, so he's of the same generation essentially as Riggs and Murtaugh. Um, so he he kind of floats the idea that everybody in this room is on the verge of retirement, perhaps. Um, I do like that Riggs is has to be told to sit down. It, I'm not going to go into detail about, but it's, it's just a funny bit where like the captain's like looking wistfully out out his his window and and saying all this business about being too old and like maybe maybe we need to hang it up and stuff. And then like he turns his head and like Mel Gibson's just like standing like right next to him. <laughs> He's like Riggs, sit down. It it's it's like being it's like a boy in the principal's office or something. It very much has that kind of vibe to it. Um, so, uh, the captain has called them into his office because he is to promote them. Apparently, the explanation is that the police department has lost uh, a major insurance contract of some sort. So, <laughs> because the two of them, Riggs and Murtaugh, are, 
are liabilities. Uh, they want them to take. They want them to be less directly connected to the action. They want them to be on the sidelines. They want them. They they promote them to captain so they can't get their hands dirty as often as they used to. Uh, so we have some business where the two of them celebrate their random promotion. Uh, they they are like two children in the principal's office. It's really, it's very charming and hilarious. Uh, on their way out, uh, I didn't notice this on any other viewing of the film, but uh, they're congratulated by many people and also teased at the same time as they march through the police station. But uh, the chopper pilot uh, actually congratulates them and tells them like like hey if you want to come up in the chopper for a free ride or something like you're like, sure you're entitled to that now it's just a throwaway line but it's interesting from a structural standpoint like because all it's meant to do is uh point out to us the viewer that a chopper unit exists at the police department and they will factor in a little bit later they'll do a thing later on in the movie so it's just like a small little detail it wastes none of your time because it's a walk and talk it's a west wing style like walk and talk through the police station but it's it's like one line of dialogue that it has a reason to be there and i thought that was kind of neat anyway uh butters also congratulates our boys on their promotion and this is where they begin the slightly uncomfortable uh, subplot of Murtaugh suspecting that Butters is gay, um, which, as I said, socially conservative as he is, uh, Murtaugh, he isn't like hostile towards the idea of Butters being gay, not not even a little bit, but he is of the mentality that's like, you you do your stuff over there, like like it, I'm fine with it as long as I don't need to hear about it. Um, so it makes him uncomfortable, but he's not like outwardly like hateful or or disdainful or anything. It's just uncomfortable for him. Um, but yeah, this is a essentially like a treated as a running gag of sorts, um, where Butters is trying to be extra kind and like appreciative of Murtaugh because he's trying to find an opportunity to you know insert himself into the life of of his wife of his wife's family in the form of you know befriending her father um but Murtaugh is misreading it as him being attracted to him which is which is very dumb and silly very dumb is is probably most accurate um but uh anyway that's where this begins uh also worth pointing out um apparently Butters in early drafts of the script was supposed to be gay uh, in earliest drafts of the script, he wasn't apparent. Um, I, I don't think he was in the film, but at one point he was supposed to be a gay de- detective in the department that they worked with. Um, and then later on it was changed that he was not in fact gay. They just thought he was, and he was now going to be played by Chris Rock. So one of those things that got tr- like written and rewritten countless times before we ended up with what we got uh, as the finished product. Um, Mary Ellen Trainer uh, also makes her only appearance in the film. Um, she is the uh, psychiatrist, uh, the police department psychiatrist that has been in every Lethal Weapon film. Uh, apparently she's a good friend of our director, Richard Donner. She's appeared in a lot of his films. I love her. She's great. Uh, she's uh, very good in uh, every appearance she has in all these films. Uh, and this is one of her most impactful sequences across all four of those films because uh, Riggs actually approaches her for the first time in the entire franchise, sincerely asking for advice. 
And it's at this point that after, you know, a decade of her giving, of her taking his shit, of him, he and Murtaugh harassing her and, and treating her like a joke, that she cuts him off and tells him the fuck off. And it is, it's pretty savage. Like, it's very intense. And then, of course, uh, Riggs being Riggs, he spins it as she's storming off and uh, makes a big scene uh, by yelling to her in front of the entire station that I, I can't go out with you. I'm, 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 I'm a committed man. I have a baby on the way. I, I'm sorry. I can't go out with you. It's, it's really mean and uh, very funny at the same time. Uh, terrific music cue in the form of uh, Eric Clapton's uh, theme for Riggs uh, flaring up just as we get to see him making a very self-satisfied smile and uh, leaving the scene. Uh, it's like, yeah, like I may have gotten my ass kicked on that that freighter last night, but I, I, on other levels, in terms of giving people shit at work, still got it. <laughs> uh, so we cut to the uh, Asian Crimes, uh, Asian Organized Crimes Unit um, at uh, the police station. And we get introduced uh, to a couple of other new characters um, that only one of them really registered with me. It's it's an entire group of guys who factor into the finale of the film in the form of like serving as backup for our heroes. But uh, the most significant one that stood out to me is uh, Calvin Jung, uh, who plays a detective in this department, the Asian Organized Crime Unit. And uh, I recognized him from Robocop. Uh, he is one of Clarence Boddicker's gang uh, in that film. Uh, he gets kind of an unceremonious death uh, in that film in the form of... Uh, it's during the uh, the cocaine factory raid. He just kind of gets shot and is like dismissed from the film. It's not theatrical in any way. It f- it almost feels like maybe it was a, a botch or something. Like maybe his squibs failed that day and they had to move on or something. Kind of unfortunate. But yeah, Calvin Jung is the name of the actor, and uh, he is the man with the answers because our heroes most certainly don't have them, but he does because this is his territory, and uh, he informs our heroes uh, that. Uncle Benny, uh, who we, the audience, have met, but our heroes haven't yet, um, is the, the big trafficker in town who they suspect of being responsible for the stowaways on the freighter, the Chinese stowaways. Uh, and Riggs recruits Butters uh, to come with he and Murtaugh to go check out Uncle Benny at his restaurant. Uh, so we have a brief car ride where some, uh, some words are exchanged. Uh, this is the goddamn floor bit. Uh, which is just basically Chris Rock doing some Chris Rock uh, stand-up material uh, as he explains how he became a cop. Uh, and we have a, a brief but pretty funny sequence where we discover Leo is tailing them in an SUV. Uh, Leo blocks traffic, by the way, uh, pulling up to our heroes on the side of the road. Uh, and he and Butters just get into it. Like, they do not like each other. Butters hates him immediately he just gets a whiff of something he doesn't like and uh anyway uh, <laughs> i won't make a big thing about it, but i will point out that I, I love the bit where uh leo is trying to make peace with butters like he's trying to like wind it he's trying to reel it in like like he started out kind of hostile and overly overly animated but now he's trying to like reel it in and he, he's thinking he's getting to a place of peace with Butters but then I forget what Butters says to him <laughs> Joe Pesci and his, his timing and his explos- explosivity um, he just flies off the handle and he says I didn't call you any names you fuckface <laughs> just Joe Pesci saying the word fuckface is ah, chef's kiss just comedic gold 
to me anyway. Uh, so we go to Uncle Benny's and we see before our heroes actually get in to the office, um, Jet Li is mad Uncle Benny because, quote, the uncle won't finish, quote, the job until he sees, quote, the family. Uh, so we have all these put all of these pins that we're putting on the board right now. That's like, hey, there's somebody's somebody has an uncle who's doing a job and uh, there's a family. And, you know, if you're paying attention at all, it's like, hmm, you know, the Hongs, the family, potentially. Uh, the only family that's been introduced to us of any significance in the film. Uh, so our heroes break into the uh, into the back office of a restaurant that Benny apparently owns, uh, and they question him about the ship. Uh, there's uh, <laughs> some uncomfortably racist dialogue on the part of Mel Gibson that... Uh, Apparently, on the director's commentary, uh, I don't know if this was like a cover-your-ass kind of thing, but Richard Donner did point out that um, there is a, a fried rice gag, a fried lice. Uh, that is fried rice, you click, as uh, Kim Chan says it. Apparently, that was Kim Chan's idea. Uh, he, he was the one who put Mel Gibson up to doing that routine uh, in front of the camera. It is dreadfully racist, um, but, you know, it... it I, I, I guess it's appropriate. I don't know. Absolutely not. But anyway, uh, Benny uh, actually steps in, like he steps in between Riggs and uh, Wasing Koo, uh, Jet Li's character, when Riggs attempts to question him. But Riggs is very insistent, and he and Jet Li have a stare down uh, that is quite effective. I love this kind of shit where you're planting the seeds of conflicts to come, where it's like Riggs is just egging him on, like trying to get him to flinch. He's he's basically he's basically challenging him, but Jet Li gives him nothing, and doesn't even react to anything he says to him. And Benny tells Riggs that Jet Li doesn't speak English, uh, so uh, Riggs decides to leave the hard way uh, by smashing a two way two way mirror instead of using the door. Uh, so that's a that's highly illegal. That's property damage. And he also pulls the uh, the fire sprinklers in the restaurant, which is. That's just mean, man. Uh, to, to quote a movie that would come out the next year in uh, Mel Gibson's filmography, that would, of course, be Payback. Man, that, man, that, that's just mean, man. Uh, thank you, James Coburn, for that lovely line delivery. Um, and Jet Li gets to say his catchphrase, both in, uh, I believe, Mandarin and English. Uh, in, Kong, in Hong Kong, you'd be dead, uh, is what he says as Riggs leaves. And more importantly, he says it in English, thereby pointing out that all those nasty things that Riggs was saying to both he and Uncle Benny, he he got a read on it. He like maybe like who knows if he got all of it, but he got enough of it. Uh, so he doesn't like that man. <laughs> uh, he does not like Martin Riggs. Uh, so as our heroes are leaving the restaurant, uh, we break out into a lovely foot chase, a lovely protracted foot chase actually. Um, Richard Donner was quick quick to uh, credit the second unit team on the film for doing a bang up job. I have to agree. Um, and what follows is a foot chase wherein through the window of the restaurant, like as they're walking down the stairs to exit the building, Riggs actually sees James Liu, uh, the, AKA the guy who kicked his ass the other night uh, through the window, just standing out front of the restaurant. And so Riggs takes off in hot pursuit on foot. Uh, he chases James Liu um, and Butters and Murtog uh, take off in hot pursuit of Another one of those very, very, very familiar faces. Uh, as I said, this movie has an incredible cast of that guys, like those familiar character actors, especially stunt players that 
maybe you don't know their name, but you definitely know their face. Uh, the two of them go after Philip Tan, uh, who also has tons of films to his credit. I believe he was a like a major side villain in Bloodsport 2. And uh, his son, uh, I don't know if he has many sons in the film industry, but his son, uh, Louis Tan, uh, was the protagonist in the most recent Mortal Kombat film. Uh, he was also in that uh, Wu Assassins show on Netflix. Uh, he's kind of has like a burgeoning career going on at the moment. So the multi-generational uh, family of performers. But yeah, Philip Tan, is he's kind of legendary. He's, he's done tons of stuff. And he is here to mostly be funny. And it, it he has a couple of lines and they're all pretty good. Um, I do like the bit where uh, Murtaugh pulls a hammy uh, trying to trying to follow everybody running down the street and he ends up uh, taking a wad of cash. Remember, he's supposed to be on the take. He's supposed to be in the money uh, in this film. Uh, so he takes a wad of cash and he, he puts it in, in some random guy's hand and takes his bike. And I like the bit where he takes off on the bike and then the guy who he took the bike from just like yells off in a random direction. Hey, Johnny, somebody stole your bike. <laughs> it's like <laughs> he was just holding on to that for his friend and he got paid. Good for him. He wins. Uh, Butters ends up catching up to Philip Tan. And uh, we have a funny bit where Chris Rock gets to read him uh, the nastiest Miranda rights that have ever been read. Uh, meanwhile, Riggs uh, ends up on a rooftop and attempts, attempts to jump to another one in pursuit of James Liu. Uh, he doesn't quite make it, uh, and kind of similar to Lethal Weapon 3 when he fell off the unfinished freeway, um, they have to like improvise a, uh, a landing spot for him to fall, and uh, they, they pull a dumpster over, him, over for him to fall into. So this is twice now uh, that James Liu has confounded or defeated Martin Riggs in this film. Um, and this is also where it's revealed that Philip Tan was, was apparently just an Asian-American innocent bystander that just happened to be... St he was a waiter from the restaurant that happened to be standing next to James Liu when they took off after him, which is kind of fun, where it's just like it's it's kind of a play on, like, oh, you Asian fellers all look the same. It's like, absolutely not. He was, he was just having a smoke break, and you thought he was up to no good. Just because he was standing next to a, like an, an Asian man who, yes, absolutely has done bad things, including murder, but not both of them. They've just they were just standing next to each other. He doesn't even know him. Um. Anyway, uh, Philip Tan's lines are great. Basically, he's saying like you you physically you physically abused me. Uh, so he, he's gonna file suit with the department probably because of how he. How, like police brutality essentially and being wrongfully accused um, and then we have a cool scene where we cut to the rooftop once again and James Liu is, is running around he's trying to he's escaped essentially but he's, he's trying to find a hiding spot and then Jet Li gets the drop on him uh, he announces his presence foot first uh, his leg just enters the frame and he basically clotheslines James Liu with his leg um, and we see that Jet Li's character is this is supposed to be uh, there's always a bigger fish kind of situation where James Liu was shown to be formidable we saw him beat Martin Riggs in, in a straight up fight uh, and then we saw him escape him on a foot like during a foot chase so he's meant to be formidable and then we put him opposite Jet Li's character and he is completely ineffectual like he gets his ass kicked uh, he gets fish hooked at one point uh, and then strangled to death uh, with uh, a, like a, a bead bracelet. 
Um, Jet Li kills him effortlessly, and it's a, it's a very good way of displaying the threat level of your villain, where it's like, that guy was bad, this guy's way worse. Um, I, I love shit like that. I love, uh, you know, it kind of makes sense that Jeff Jones was uh, involved in this production, because uh, power levels uh, are something that's very, very important uh, in the world of comic books, where it's like, you need... Super strength is one of those things that has tears to it, and it's very important when you're telling a story with superpowered individuals to impart to the viewer like these these people all have super strength, but like some of them are stronger than others. And you'll you'll notice in like comic book movies and stuff they do that where they demonstrate in some small way, like sometimes showy ways, but some like they often find ways of demonstrating to you the audience that's like this person's strong. But if they're if they're tangling with this person, they're not on the same level. Things of that nature. Uh, so that's essentially what they do here with Jelly. Uh, with you know, it's all nonverbal. Basically, just he hits him a few times, and you see that yeah, he's a lot better at hitting people than that other guy. <laughs> um, so we cut back to the Murtaugh house, and uh, we see that uh, Papa Hong, uh, who is played by an actor by the name of Eddie Ko. Um, actually, I'm gonna look at his filmography real quick because uh, he was. He is not in a lot of this movie, but he uh, he makes an impression. Um, I see that he has done quite a lot of American film work. Uh, he apparently in The Martian. Didn't know that. Uh, he's also listed as being involved in uh, Rumble in the Bronx in some capacity, as well as The Bride with White Hair too. Uh, I can't speak for that second one, but I do know that that first one. I think that's a Ronnie Yu film. Uh, another fellow who would end up working in the Hollywood system uh, not too long after. Uh, this film. Anyway, uh, he uh, plays Papa Hong, uh, and they, he has a lovely little scene uh, with Murtaugh, uh, who is coming home in the evening. Uh, Hong gets up because he's sitting at Roger's chair watching a, a television program about fucking Chairman Mao. That's uh, interesting. Um, and uh, they share a drink of tequila that Roger presents to him. Uh, they have a toast in the form of uh, saying bread. Uh, a little bit of a English misunderstanding there on the part of Hong that's very cute. Um, and at Hong, very importantly though, mentions as they sip their tequilas together that he has an uncle who is an artist who paid to bring him to the States. So remember all the things that Jet Li was talking about? Uncles, families, jobs? Perhaps, perhaps we're onto something here that the Hong family is the family and the uncle is Hong's uncle. And the job has something to do with him being an artist. Um, anyway, uh, most important thing here, though, is that uh, Murtaugh gives him his watch, uh, which is uh, prompted by uh, Roger using the phrase, where does the time go? And then Hong responding, I don't know, uh, I have no watch. It's just very cute because he literalizes it. And then Murtaugh's like, oh, well, you know, uh, if you need something to tell the time, here you go. And, it, he's in a very giving mood, and it, it's a it's a war, very warm scene, and very important because one, it starts to put together the pieces in terms of what Jet Li was referring to when he was talking to Uncle Benny, and two, it, it greatly humanizes the Hong family, makes you give a shit about them essentially. Uh, we cut to China, uh, which is bathed entirely in blue lighting. It is shown to be just like drenched in rain, it's just torrential downpour. And a bunch of military personnel uh, are transporting four individuals to America, is what we see 
uh, on the like the terminal in the uh, in the cockpit of the plane that they're loading them onto. Uh, cut to the police station, and we get to see Martin Riggs in a boxing sparring session, wearing headgear. Good for you. You know, I, I know it's not proven to be super helpful, but you know, at least at least you tried. At least you're wearing the headgear. Um, and Riggs is fighting somebody. He's sparring with somebody at the department who is much younger than him and who is kicking his ass. Uh, so we get to see Riggs actually land a couple, a couple of stiff jabs, but then. He uh, overthrows a right hand and feigns, very obviously, for us, the viewer anyway, uh, a shoulder injury, which, uh, you know, if you've been watching these films, you know that the character of Martin Riggs is supposed to have a trick shoulder that pops out of its its socket sometimes. So he claims that that's what just happened, but his demeanor suggests no. Like, he's putting on a brave front. He's trying to act tough in front of everybody. And we have a very important scene. Occasionally, I'll, uh, I'll use the, I'll like use the phrase like a, a noteworthy scene or like a classic sequence, and I, I would I would classify this sequence as one of this film's classic scenes, and that's the locker room talk, um, where Riggs kind of grimly admits, like grudgingly admits to to Roger that, uh, yeah, he, he he faked his shoulder injury, and uh, he thinks he's losing it. Like he's, he's acknowledging I'm getting older. I think I've lost a step and he's, he's working his way up to saying the words at which point Roger steps in and, and speaks on his behalf and says, you're getting too old for this shit. That's what's happened. Right. <laughs> and he's inclined to agree. It's like, yeah, you know, maybe. And Roger urges him to accept it like he does is how he phrases it. But then Riggs shakes his head and he demands that, they will will it not to happen. Like, remember what we did when we were trying to run over the, the flamethrower guy in the beginning of the movie? He demands that they will it not to happen. We're not too old for this shit. And they repeat it as a mantra, and they keep saying it over and over and over again. We are not too old for this shit. Uh, very important to note, at the beginning of this sequence, where they're starting to talk about getting too old, or at least Riggs is finally, finally starting to admit that to himself... They very deliberately cast somebody uh, to walk in the background of some of the shots uh, who is a gigantic bodybuilder. Like, I have no idea who this man is, but he is jacked beyond belief. And it's it's very intentional visual symbolism where it's just like, that's like a visual representation of like idealized stereotypical like masculinity. It's like, Riggs is confronted by the reality that's like, you know not too long ago I, I used to be able to lie to myself and tell tell myself that that was attainable but no longer uh, so it, it's cute it's it's like one of the one of those film language things um, anyway butter steps in and ruins the moment by uh, sparking uh, Murtaugh's homophobia where he's he's in his underwear chanting we're not I'm not too old for this shit and then butters walks in compliments him and he's like ah, I gotta hide myself it's it's dumb I kind of wish it wasn't there um, anyway we cut to Leo, and he is also at the police station. And we, uh, we very casually, both Riggs and Murtaugh, steal his donuts without asking. I, it's like one of those little things that you, you don't notice unless you're looking at the film under a microfine, like a magnifying glass. But I, I, I was this time. 
And uh, we learn that Leo is looking for a dog uh, that scratched the fuck out of his face. Uh, he He's running a scam where instead of finding the actual dog, he bought and died, like dyed the, the fur of a dog. Um, yeah, it's, it's, this is an extraneous detail. This doesn't need to be here at all. Um, anyway, uh, Butters comes in. He just, he tells everybody that he discovered that James Liu uh, was found dead on a rooftop. I think he says something about like the birds pecked his eyes out. Um, but he also informs everybody that the person who was shot uh, on the deck of the freighter um, was proven to have been killed by James Liu. So a bad guy got killed. Okay. Um, this is where they get we get the uh, I guess iconic. Uh, they fuck you with they fuck you with the blank scene. Um, there has been a they fuck you with a with the blank scene uh, in every uh, Lethal Weapon film that Joe Pesci is in. And uh, initially, it was they fuck you with the drive-through. Uh, the third one, it was uh, they fuck you with the hospital. They fuck you in the hospital. And this one, it's they fuck you with the cell phone. Although this one gets an additional layer in the form of Joe Pesci and Chris Rock playing off of one another. I think it's pretty funny. Uh, this this sequence actually was one of the earliest MP3s I ever had on my computer. <laughs> was Chris Rock and Joe Pesci yelling about them fucking you with the cell phone? Uh, it's a fun little spiel. Uh, all, for some reason, the part of it that makes me laugh the most is uh, when Riggs interrupts them by pretending to call Leo, and uh, Leo uses the phrase telephone tough guy. Again, wor- words that are only made funny or made especially funny coming out of Joe Pesci. Fuckface and telephone tough guy. For some reason, that just makes me, that tickles me just right. Um, anyway, uh, we did mention that Leo is a PI. And uh, it's at this point that Riggs and uh, Murtaugh just, just on on a whim, kind of, they decide to hire Leo to tail Uncle Benny, just just for a rainy day, kind of. So put a pin in that. Uh, we go on a car ride, and Riggs and Murtaugh are conspicuously riding the, in the back of a patrol car. Um, I get maybe it's like a thing where they ha- like the Murtaugh family hasn't bought another car or something since uh, the vehicle was demolished. <laughs> Uh, almost nine months ago by the, the, the flamethrower guy. Um, I don't know, but they get a ride home from a pair of patrolmen and Riggs tries to confront Roger about the excess money that he's been spending lately. And uh, the way Roger attempts to explain it is by hand-waving it away and saying that, oh, Trish came into some money. Not Didn't all the way get an explanation, but he, he tried to placate Riggs with that. Um... And there's a weird bit here where they, as they're arriving at Murtaugh's house, they both, Riggs and Murtaugh, suspect that something is up because there's too many cars parked in the neighborhood. Like, there's a lot of conspicuous vehicles parked around the house. And they verbalize that something is up. But they don't recruit the patrolmen to help them. They just get out of the car and go into the house. It's like, why would you ask them, like, to, you know, hang around for just a minute or something? Anyway, they go into the house, or at least Murtaugh does. He goes in through the front door, and Lorna and Rianne and Trish, um, Roger's wife, are all just standing in the kitchen, very awkwardly positioned. And then uh, a bunch of goons come out of the woodwork inside the Murtaugh house and hold everybody up at gunpoint, at which point uh, Riggs uh, intercedes by coming in the back door, and we have essentially, uh, for lack of a better term, a Mexican standoff where everybody's pointing guns at everybody. This was a very common sight in the 90s in cinema. Um, 
probably uh, you know uh, a holdover from the days of uh, Sergio Leone and later John Woo, and then by this time, uh, by way of Quentin Tarantino via his uh, love for John Woo. Um, anyway, people pointing guns in each other's faces uh, all across a room was something you saw a lot in the 90s. Uh, anyway, this this is the scene where, holy shit, the talent in the room uh, is ultra impressive. So I, I mentioned this movie had an all-star cast of goons. Like, they have a ultra-prominent goon squad. This this is the scene where the, the talent level just, like, goes straight through the roof. So we had... James Liu earlier. We had Philip Tan earlier. Both both of them are out of the movie at this point. But in this scene, we're introduced to Roger Yuan, uh, whose brother, I forget the name of his brother, but uh, he was in uh, The Paper Tigers uh, a few years ago. Uh, very funny in that movie. Roger Yuan is one of those guys that's in everything. He's choreographed a lot of things on top of that. Uh, Jeff Imada is in this as well. Uh, he had a very, very small role in, I believe, the very, very first Lethal Weapon. Uh, Gary Busey stole his car. Um, Jeff Yamada is also uh, has an endless list of, of credits and accolades in the world of American stunts. Um, Simon Ree. Uh, we have a Ree brother in this film. Uh, Simon and Philip Ree are two uh, Korean-American uh, actors and stunt people that have done countless films and i believe are still like all of these people i just listed off are still quite active in the industry quite active uh simon Ree uh often plays bad guys philip Ree was kind of thrust into the spotlight by being given a handful of starring roles in movies in the 90s primarily but simon generally he plays bad guys oftentimes um he's in here too uh and then there's one more fella whose name actually george chunk uh, is the last major uh, f- ultra famous that guy that's in this room. Oh yeah, and Jet Li's here too. Uh, so literally every goon in in this room in this scene is very notable. Like like you've you've seen them, you know their face. Uh, I, I guarantee you, you you have seen these people in lots of movies, um, and they're still working to to this day. Um, anyway, uh, Lorna starts a melee. Uh, she gets the drop on George Chung and starts fighting him. Uh, Mel starts fighting uh, Roger Guan, I believe. Um, and uh, Murtaugh, I believe, gets he gets paired up with uh, Jeff Imada. Uh, everybody's fighting everybody. And meanwhile, Jet Li's just kind of standing on the banister watching it all happen. It's kind of great. Um, anyway, eventually, uh, Jet Li intercedes. Uh, we get a wire a gag of him jumping off the staircase uh, and knocking a, a pistol out of Mel Gibson's hand. Uh, and then we get just a, a brief but impactful sequence of him just lightning fast beating the fuck out of Martin Riggs. And uh, credit to Mel Gibson, the, the face acting he does as he's getting the shit kicked out of him uh, goes a long way towards uh, selling the dynamism of Jet Li. Because, like, Mel Gibson is... He's a physical guy, but, like, in terms of, like, extensive fight choreography and stuff, he's he's not an expert like he, he can he can look good on camera and stuff but he's he's not going to be mastering any like 20 move sequences of choreography or anything like that but he does know how to get his ass kicked i mean the man loves to be tortured on film so when it comes to selling for other people he is naturally kind of gifted at it and he really does a great job here because 
it's just like a couple of frames of visual information but like in between the beats of Jet Li smacking him in the face you can see not only is the character of Riggs like in pain from getting smacked around but there's also like kind of like a look of confusion and disbelief where you get the sense it's like it's it's not even that the guy is strong it's the uh, he's too fucking fast and, and his movements are too He's too agile and calculated, and I don't know where to begin when it comes to matching him or countering him. So he's just completely overwhelmed, and it really sells well on camera. It's only like five or six beats of choreography. Uh, Pretty remarkable stuff. Um, Anyway, we get this really awesome bit that was in most certainly in the trailer of the film. It's a wire gag wherein uh, Jet Li uh, posts up onto one hand, almost like uh, doing a breakdance move or something, and I think he, he kicks Mel and he picks up a gun at the same time. And we have a standoff situation where Jet Li is sandwiched between Riggs and Murtaugh. And then he notices that it's like, hmm, two people have guns on me in this moment. I, I'll, I'm going to hang up my gun. And Jet Li gives his devilish little grin. And it is worth pointing out, I don't believe Jet Li had ever played villains uh, up to this point in his career. I could be wrong on that, but I don't recall any credits on his filmography up to this point where he played bad guys. He very seldom plays bad guys, uh, but he's quite good at it when he does. Um, Talented actor on top of being a brilliant martial artist. Um, Anyway, a really cool bit where he hangs up his gun, or at least he pretends to, and then he grabs the slide of Mel Gibson's automatic pistol and uh, pulls it off. He, he, he disengages the spring and, and removes the slide from the pistol and then kicks Danny Glover and then kicks Mel Gibson and just one deft move as Riggs puts it towards the end of the film, knocks them both out. And then Lorna steps out from the kitchen and gently kicks her in the face as well. Apparently Rene Russo was absolutely terrified to do that gag. Uh, I saw the filming of it. It was very safe, but apparently it made her very, very nervous uh, to have a man uh, put his foot up in her face like that. Um, Quick cut uh, to everybody, like the Murtaugh family, Orna, our heroes, all like bound and gagged, essentially, laying on the floor of the Murtaugh household as all the goons pour gasoline all over the place and set fire to the Murtaugh family home. Um, long story short, uh, Ping, uh, the grandchild, Hong's grandchild, uh, who is very, very cute, apparently first-time actor, little boy, uh, he... Uh, comes out of nowhere kind of and he has a pair of scissors and he just miraculously frees everybody from the fire this is a little contrived but you know we we needed to figure out a way to get them out of this situation and maybe they could have sent butters in there maybe they could have sent leo in there but they went with ping they went with the kid so the kid cuts him free everybody flees out on the front lawn and i love the music cue that happens here michael Kamen's score for this film as i said is probably the most dynamic and varied if if i'm like from my standpoint of the entire series and uh i love the cue when they're fleeing the fire like it had there's an emotional intensity to that bit but then there's a bit where uh, mel gibson has to he puts his elbow through a car window like a passenger window to retrieve a radio to take in a to take in a I think Rianne's Pontiac is the car that they use uh, for the the car chase that's about to happen. But there's there's a music cue that happens as soon as his elbow goes through the glass um, and they take off in the car that hits just right. Like it's an electric guitar riff that just 
feels like the correct change in the energy of the scene where it goes from being like like defeatist and heavily emotional to like but now it's time for us to hit the road and and hit them back uh so we immediately transition like seamlessly from escaping the fire to uh, a protracted highway chase that is absolutely terrific um the the stunt crew for this film did a wonderful job with this it, it's worth pointing out the the stunt work the action in this film top to bottom is far and away the best of the entire franchise and it goes a long way like it's much appreciated it, it future proofs the film in in ways that the serve as liabilities for some of the older lethal weapon films because some of the action in the older lethal weapon films is not amazing um it's it's the characters like that was always richard donner's priority was getting the characters and the performances right rather than the action like he 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 knew where his priorities lay and that was obviously the correct choice but in this film with the resources of you know late 90s technology and ultra talented individuals working on all of it uh, they did really incredible things uh, by any standard of any time uh so it's here where they use that radio as they're driving in Rian's car uh to call the chopper boys uh the, the helicopter pilot uh from the police station uh to recruit his assistance in locating the car uh, that the bad guys drove off in and uh, <laughs> it was a really stupid bit where uh they the chopper apparently finds two different cars uh one of which is going east and one of which is going west and Riggs's logic is the bad guys are chinese china's east we're going east let's go with the east one and of course it ends up working out stupid but you know nobody's perfect uh, so uh roger mentions during this car ride and this is what i was talking about about plugging up holes uh, across all the Lethal Weapon films, Richard Donner seems to love using ADR to plug in, like plug up holes in logic or or lack like lacking in in exposition elements that uh, become apparent through the editing process. Uh, so it's here where we get like a brief, just brief ADR, brief conversation of Roger mentioning in the car that uh, the bad guys found his house because Hong. Con- at one point contacted his uncle from that house so somehow they traced hung back to that house uh, and they picked they picked him and, and the whole family up from the house and that's how they found that's how they found them essentially uh so we get a bit where uh, Riggs jumps out of the driver's seat and onto the hood of the car uh and he jumps onto a oversized load now remember all of this is transpiring on an active highway Apparently this bit of the film, this whole stunt sequence had to be shot in Vegas uh, because L.A. wouldn't allow uh, for them to do the things that they were going to do. But they had a whole team of stunt drivers across like a four or five uh, mile stretch of road that they had access to at like a specific hour of the day. Uh, They did a bang up job with it. Uh, So Riggs jumps onto an oversized load, which happens to be transporting a house uh, on the highway. And then uh, we get this terrific shot of uh simon Ree driving on the highway just kind of like you know minding his own business eyes eyes towards looking down the road and then we get a shot looking across his face like a profile shot of him and the door of the of the house that's being transported on the road opens and we just see a pair of shoes step into frame and then the next shot is like a a head-on shot of simon Ree. um 
and two hands darting through the window, like the driver's side window, and yanking him out of the driver's seat. So Riggs shoves his hands through the window and yanks Simon Ree out of a moving vehicle and into a house, a moving house on the freeway. Uh, pretty great. Uh, so uh, he and, and Riggs get into it. They start fighting. Uh, fun little fight in the house. Simon Ree gets to do some of his uh, taekwondo kicks. Uh, lovely stuff. High kicks, like roundhouse kicks, all the business. Um, but as he's struggling with Riggs, uh, they both they both fall onto the road, uh, onto a table. Uh, they get ends up trailing behind uh, the house again. All of this in transit, and Riggs ends up riding it like like a, a jet ski essentially, or. And, and uh, Simon Ree gets kicked off of the table and he goes rolling down the freeway uh, and we get uh, a lovely dummy shot of uh, Simon Ree's uh, full body dummy getting uh, clobbered by a semi truck. Uh, it's delightful. It's, it's only on screen for a few frames, but you get to see it top to bottom. It's like it's not obscured. It's like, yeah, that's a dummy that just got hit by a truck. I <laughs> uh, always love seeing a dummy get wrecked in a film. Uh so Riggs is table surfing on the road and Jeff Yamada is driving behind him, threatening to run him over. Roger protects him by slamming his car into Jeff Yamada's car. Um, I love that Riggs gets back into the car with Roger. And Roger's first question is, what did he say about the Hongs? Because he was trying to question him while he was fighting him. And Riggs' response is, we'll have to find out from the other guy. Because <laughs> he... He killed him. You know, he didn't get to ask him that question. Um, and as they catch up to Jeff Yamada, though, uh, they end up going down the wrong path on the freeway and they get launched off a ramp. Uh, really dynamic stunt sequence that apparently was penned into the script by a friend of Shane Black, uh, Fred Decker, uh, where the car gets launched into a skyscraper and we get a whole sequence of a car driving at top speed uh, through what look, looks to be like an architectural firm of, of some sort. So it drives through the entirety of a building and flies out the other side, like through another window and, and back onto the freeway. Uh, it's, a, it's a really great gag. Um, anyway, just as they think they're catching up to Jeff Yamada, uh, his car gets T-boned by a semi-truck and he is dead too. Uh, so they weren't able to get any information but hey we got a, a fun five minute action scene out of it uh cut to a chinese custom zone where jet lee is meeting with quote the corrupt general uh, who is played by dana lee uh he's a very familiar face in the world of american cinema i've seen him in plenty of movies he only has a couple of lines in this film but he has great presence um he is a corrupt chinese general and this is what they call him um Anyway, we learn that the four Chinese men that were being transported uh, from China to the U.S. illegally, um, w one of them is Jet Li's brother. Uh, and apparently he's a, a prominent convict of some sort from China. And Jet Li is paying, is prepared uh, to pay a heap of money to this general in order to buy his brother's freedom. Uh, cut back to the Murtaugh burnt household. Uh, so the house is now being attended to by firefighters, but it is, it is, it's a crispy critter. Um, and Butters shows up and uh, we have some neat shots dedicated to showing him looking to Rianne and like the two of them, like mouthing words back and forth to each other. S they still haven't told, uh, Roger at this point. So he doesn't know. 
Um, anyway, all of our heroes suspect that Uncle Benny uh, was the one who led the attack on the house. Like, he was the one who sicked all the goons on them that sent them to uh, Roger's house. Uh, so they call Leo, who, as we mentioned earlier, uh, was uh, paid, was hired uh, to tail Benny. They call Leo to find out where Benny is right this minute. Uh, so we go on a car ride, and uh, we go to a dental office uh, where Uncle Benny is being attended to by a dentist at the moment. And uh, Leo makes a big stink at the front desk. Uh, apparently, the uh, receptionist in this sequence is a producer friend of Richard Donner's. Apparently, she like worked her way up from obscurity to being a full-fledged producer uh, under uh, Richard Donner's like tutelage. Essentially, like he he really likes this lady. I don't know her name, but uh, he was really happy to see her when she came on screen during the uh, uh, during the director's commentary. And what follows is a, a protracted, impro- like seemingly improvised sequence where uh, Riggs, Murtog, and Butters uh, all come into the the dentist dentist office where uh, Uncle Benny is just kind of hanging out because the dentist got pulled away to attend to Leo, who is feigning a uh, some sort of dental pain of some sort and making a huge stink, uh, thereby serving as a major diversion. Uh, so all of our heroes crowd around Uncle Benny and threaten him repeatedly and then uh, put a nitrous oxide uh, mask on him uh, and then just freely let the gas into the room. And uh, the joke is that Benny get they call it laughing gas, like Benny gets really, really loose. He starts just like laughing hysterically and, and saying whatever comes to mind. Like they treat it like a truth serum kind of thing. Um and because the gas is free, like flowing freely into the room, all of our heroes kind of follow suit uh, by also laughing hysterically and constantly and saying all the things that they probably wouldn't have otherwise. Uh, so Benny says a few important things in the form of uh, introducing the phrase uh, Yamimbi, uh, which we'll later learn the meaning of that, and also time for the four fathers. Oh yeah, and just for funsies, he also shares that he's sleeping with his wife's two sisters, and it's probably going to be bad for him when she finds out about that. Uh, it's also during this scene that uh, Roger learns that Butters is his son-in-law, uh, because it, it it finally comes out. And because he's in a laughing fit, like Roger can't express frustration at this, he just laughs at it, like, like anything else. And uh, <laughs> he does a little pantomime saying, I thought he was, and then he does kind of like a a fanciful gesture suggesting like, yeah, he he thought Butters was gay. Um, Anyway, the scene concludes kind of abruptly. uh, And uh, as they're stepping out of the elevator, uh, Riggs falls out of the elevator. There's a punch sound effect suggesting that uh, Murtaugh slugged him. And uh, basically Roger ends the scene by storming out of the building and saying like, Hey Butters, now I know I'm not happy about it. You, me and Rianne, we're going to talk this shit out. Oh yeah. Riggs, Fuck you. Uh, you was my best friend. How come you betrayed me by keeping that from me and making me think all these uh, troubling thoughts about this young man? <laughs> um, anyway, uh, cut to the counterfeit factory. Uh, we see that uh, Grandpa Hong, uh, Hong who has Roger's watch, uh, is reunited at this counterfeit factory. Uh, we're doing a counterfeit money operation. Uh, he is reunited with his uncle, uh, who, as we learned earlier, is an artist. 
And it's at this point that uh, Jet Li steps into the room and the uncle refuses to continue working on his art project or whatever he whatever Jet Li needs him to do uh, until he sees the rest of the family. So he's now been he's now seen that Hong is here alive and safe, but he wants to see everybody else. Uh, so Jet Li, to intimidate him, uh, gives him flashes him a smile and grabs Hong by the throat and snaps his neck effortlessly. And then tells him, you get back to work, uh, or I'll, I'll just keep doing this. Uh, and that's all the convincing that the uncle needs. Um, and we have a nifty bit of editing here. It's probably done as a time saver and a very, very effective one, because it, it cuts down on the length of the film. I know that Richard Donner, he seems to be keen on keeping films roughly two hours at most. Like, anything over that, it seems like it bothers him. Like, he, he likes to keep things moving. Like, that seems to be something that he values. Um... So we have this uh, cross-cut sequence where we're cutting from Riggs and the gang on the phone with the Asian Crimes Unit, learning what the phrase Yamimbi means. It means people's money. Uh, I guess it's another uh, phrase for uh, Chinese currency. Um, and we also are cutting back and forth between that, like our heroes getting up to speed with the plot, essentially, um, that's been running parallel to them or that's been eluding them up until now. Um, and also the, the uncle completing his uh, art project, which happens to be uh, crafting uh, metallic pressing plates, essentially, uh, for crafting counterfeit money. Um, so they needed a very talented uh, metallurgist or artist uh, to craft these plates. Um, and we see him complete the job. Well, we see them start printing gobs and gobs of money. Um, and also weathering them to make them appear genuine. And also amidst all this, we see that Jet Li strangles uh, Uncle Benny uh, in the same fashion that he did James Liu. Uh, cut to Riggs and Lorna in a car. And this is a this is actually a scene that I, I, I was kind of not a fan of. Like structurally, it feels, it feels the most wasteful of any scene in the movie, really. Like I didn't get much out of it other than pyrotechnics, which I guess you know, uh, could be valuable. Um, I, I guess if you've had enough, a long enough gap between action beats, maybe this was like a, a parrot situation. Uh, what I mean by that is, uh, what was the example is, a uh, Citizen Kane, apparently Orson Welles slipped, uh, a shot of a, a screeching parrot into the film, not for any real reason other than to jolt the audience awake in case they were starting to, to waver in their engagement. Uh, with the material um, so maybe this is why this is here is to provide some pyrotechnics in a in a portion of the film where there have been none for a few minutes um, anyway it, it to me it's like the loosest like least cohesive scene in the whole movie where it's just like i don't really know why that's here but okay uh, so Riggs and lauren are in a car that for some reason they have ping with them and they talk over him uh, he's asleep between the two of them in the car and they talk about marriage again and i believe she basically tells him like yeah it would be great to get married but i'll take you any way i can get you so it's like if you're not if you're still not there I, i'm not going anywhere is basically what she's saying but she does make it known like it would be nice <laughs> um anyway they get attacked from behind and this is a reprise essentially this is the same scenario as we saw earlier in the film um, when the fella with the counterfeit visas uh, got pushed onto the tracks. And we see that 
couple of Uncle Benny's goons are in the car behind them trying to push them onto the onto the track so they can get hit by a train. Uh, Riggs hits the accelerator and speeds across the tracks, and uh, they the people trying to kill him accidentally drive onto the tracks. They get clobbered by a train, uh, two trains, in fact, uh, and they are very much dead. Um, immediately after uh, the trains go by, uh, Riggs gets a call on the radio from Raj, who informs him, uh, I found my watch, which we the audience know what that means is that he found hong because hong was the f person who he gave his watch to earlier in the film uh, so we go back to the factory although now it's swarming with police including uh riggs murtog and lorna and uh murtog explains that he found hong dead uh and uh our asian crimes unit people are here to explain the plot to our heroes because they they're far better informed than any of our main characters uh, so they explain uh, that the counterfeit money op that they they've discovered the remnants of uh, may be tied to the recent disappearance of the notorious four fathers, who are apparently four ultra prominent uh, Chinese criminals uh, who have very recently gone missing from the custody of the Chinese government. Uh, they basically catch wind of this only because Riggs and Murtaugh use the phrase four fathers in their presence and they who know these things better than our heroes are just like whoa 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 did you just say four fathers they're like yeah what does that mean they're like well let me tell you <laughs> so uh all of our heroes uh they say goodbye to uh the corpses of both uncle benny uh and hong as well and i i believe uh roger leaves his uh watch with the with the body um so, uh, very similar to previous Lethal Weapons, um, we get car ride exposition. So we get a helicopter shot, uh, and something that I haven't mentioned up till now is uh, Andre Bartkowiak, our, our cinematographer, our DP, he does seem to like putting uh, red lights uh, in vehicles at nighttime, because um, the car has that... Uh, the Code 7 boat uh, at the beginning of the film had that as well. There's a couple other vehicles that have this uh, this visual element as well. But we have that here. Apparently, it was also shot during a thunderstorm. So we have thunder cracking. Um, may, may be, it may actually be visual effects. I'm not sure. Because we do get torrential downpour and, and a thunderstorm a few minutes from now. So may, maybe it's just like one of those structural things where Richard Donner was like, well, you know... We're, we're going to have a thunderstorm in the next scene. Maybe we should set it up with this shot. And it's like, that. damn, that's that's genius. That That's the kind of attention to detail that you need to, to make a good-ass film. And I think they did it here. Uh, so we get car ride exposition. It's a helicopter shot of a moving vehicle that has the Asian Crimes Unit guys. I think Butters and uh, Riggs and Murtaugh are in the car too. And basically it's just a lot of exposition getting the viewer up to speed like ensuring that everybody knows why we're going where we're going and why we're going there it's like wow that's efficient like it's cheap for sure like that's that's a that is cheating to some extent but damn if that isn't clever uh so we cut to a foreign trade zone warehouse is what they call it and basically it's a dingy warehouse apparently this uh set was not especially fun to shoot on. Apparently they had to spend a shit ton of money to cover up uh, skylight paneling in this antiquated uh, factory. Apparently it's like a 1940s or 1950s factory that had skylights and they shot all these sequences for the finale during the daytime because Richard Donner 
apparently disdain, has a general disdain for night shoots. He finds them draining. Like he feels that the, the actors lose something working too many nights in a row. <laughs> so he insisted they shoot during the daytime. And as a result, they had to cover the skylight paneling, which cost them tens of thousands of dollars to do. Uh, it worked out. Um, anyway, we see that Jet Li and the corrupt Chinese general uh, are in the middle of their deal. So if you haven't pieced it together yet, essentially Jet Li is, he used the uncle to create the plates to manufacture counterfeit Chinese currency to pay off the corrupt general so he could bring his brother and some other goons who presumably he doesn't care as much about to the United States. And this is, this is the culmination of that deal. This is Jet Li paying off the general so he can get his brother back into his custody in the United States. Uh, too bad uh, all of our heroes roll up in their car and interrupt the deal. And uh, Riggs shows the general that uh, the money that he's being presented with is counterfeit, which deeply upsets him. And uh, we get some uh, aggressively racist dialogue once again uh, from Martin Riggs in the, in the form of... Uh, saying some fortune cookieisms, in particular the one that the one that makes your eyebrow eyebrow twitch the most the, the one that makes you wince the most is uh, something something losing face it's like ooh, that's mm, that's a that's specific and and not cool um anyway uh he tells the general that uh you got funny money like like you i don't think you want to do this deal buddy uh that you you're getting paid off in funny money uh, so the the general interrupts him by reaching for his pistol, and I love that Riggs just he, no words. He's oh, and he just takes off running. So all of our heroes, all of our cops, uh, take cover, and uh, Riggs actually has the good idea. Of, he's just like, hey, you know, like it's a deal gone wrong. Let them shoot each other. Uh, so it's a three way fight of Chinese gangsters, Chinese military, corrupt Chinese military, and the LAPD in this warehouse all shooting each other, and it's it's a it's a brief, not especially dynamic gunfight, but it's it's a neat setup for a scene, and I do like that they uh, they do some of that that mm, that filmmaking stuff where like managing the flow of information is so much of filmic storytelling, at least in like traditional mainstream cinema. And what I'm what I'm alluding to here is there's a, a running thread throughout the dialogue and the the construction of the choreography during the shootout where they keep making reference to to ammunition counts like the characters keep verbalizing how how many bullets they have left and basically what they're doing is they're training us the audience to understand that they they have they have finite ammunition so when we get to the part inevitably where they no longer have any it's been set up it's not something that was just dropped in our lap and came out of nowhere it's like oh we were we were building to that it's like we've been carrying that throughout the entire scene and now it makes sense because it's been explained very efficient um anyway uh much like how we began uh the film i, I did say this earlier like at the beginning of this podcast um we do uh, the thing where Riggs and Raj are having a uh, kind of important conversation as the bullets are whizzing by their heads. And uh, Riggs asks Raj if he's on the take. And uh, Raj explains that Ebony Clark, uh, he finally comes clean. Uh, Ebony Clark, a.k.a. the lady who writes the smutty romance novels that 
Riggs was teasing Lorna about reading earlier in the film uh, is in fact his wife, Trish. And I, I really love that uh, Riggs asks him at one point, are you boinking her? Because he, he's Raj tosses out the name Ebony Clark and Riggs's response is, are you boinking her? And then Raj is like, no, I'm not boinking her. And then he's like, wait, Trish is Ebony Clark. I'm boinking Trish. Yeah, I guess I am boinking her. <laughs> For some reason, I love that phrasing, boinking. Uh, I look forward to the day I can use that casually in daily speech. Um, so, uh, Roger Yuan, uh, as I said, he was in the action sequence at the Murtaugh house earlier in the film. Uh, he gets his here. Uh, he tries to drive off an SUV and gets uh, shot to shit. Uh, the SUV drives off of a dock and falls into the water. Uh, I have to assume the reason that that's there is we're setting up for the very, very end of this action sequence, wherein something gets pulled out of an SUV that's in the water, and it's like, we need an explanation as to how that something got in that SUV that's in the water. How did that car get in the water? Well, here's your explanation. Uh, so, uh, the Asian Crimes Unit boys, uh, have there's a, a break in the action, and Riggs is asking them, finally, hey, that guy who kicked my ass earlier in the film, uh, who who is that? So this is kind of cute. Or up to this point in the movie, none of our, our main characters actually know who Jet Li is. They don't know his name. They don't really know his deal. They know what he's trying to do, but they have, they'd have no idea of his reputation. They have no idea of his name. I mean, I guess the Asian Crimes Unit guy does tell him uh, that he's probably a triad and is especially ruthless uh, by criminal standards. But he, it's not until this moment, like just a few minutes prior to the end of the film, that Rig, Martin Riggs finds out that Wasing Ku is his name and he is he is the brother of one of the prisoners that is being bought off here. And it's like, oh, information that would have been useful to me yesterday. Um Amidst all the action, uh, Butters gets shot. Uh, we get a brief bit where Murtaugh comforts him, uh, but then puts him in the capable hands of the Asian crimes guys uh, so they can take care of him for him uh, because Roger has more important things to attend to, like getting to the end of the movie, getting to the big finale of the movie, rather. Uh, meanwhile, Riggs gets the drop on Jet Li uh, with a forklift. And I slightly disagree with this moment because it... It uh, removes a little bit of the mystique and it makes Jet Li look bad for a second, which feels slightly inappropriate. Uh, like it, it, I, I don't need, I don't know if I needed that. Like it, it just, it's just a little hiccup, I guess, in in the strength of his character up to this point. Uh, but he he like drives through a bunch of barrels uh, in a forklift. He gets the drop on Jet Li, knocks him into some barrels, like incapacitates him for just a few seconds. Um, and then Jet Li returns to the action and uh, literally like gets the drop on Riggs by once again entering the frame foot first, uh, leaping kick to Riggs's head, uh, proceeds to beat the shit out of him and elbow him in the spine a whole bunch. Um, and then uh, for the first time, and I guess only time in the entire franchise, uh, Roger, winds, he does his wind-up shot. So he's watching the, the fight go on between uh, Riggs and Wasing Ku, and he does his wind-up shot where he, he rolls his head over, and he fires and Jet Li uh, sways backwards. Like, he leans backwards, and instead of hitting Jet Li, the bullet goes into Jet Li's brother. Uh, yikes. 
Uh, and it's at this point that all of our heroes have no more bullets. Uh, they are out of ammunition. And we're cross-cutting back and forth between Jet Li uh, taking his brother over his shoulder and uh, trying to escort him to safety. Uh, he, he like walks him down a ramp into a uh, extraordinarily wet dock area that looks <laughs> eerily reminiscent of uh, the venue in which the Ninja Turtles did battle with uh, Kevin Nash, a.k.a. the Super Shredder, in uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, Secret of the Ooze. Um, so he's attending to his brother, and meanwhile, uh, Riggs and Raj, uh, they're looking for him. And they follow a blood trail uh, down to the dock. And we have this really great sequence. Like, when it comes to, to fight choreography, there's the fight itself, but the build to a fight is also an underrated component of it. Like, if you can set something up, and sometimes it takes a whole ass movie to do it to the best effect. Like, if you can really get your, your audience chomping at the bit to see to see a, a group of characters beat the fuck out of each other. It makes it that much better when it finally happens. And this movie does it really well. Cause like I said, we had the stare down earlier between Riggs and, and Jet Li. And we, we had a couple of instances of Jet Li humbling Riggs and just kind of walking over him. And so it's like his threat level is firmly established. And not only that, we just introduced the fact that, Oh shit his brother is one of the people that he's trying to break out of prison and Raj just shot him. And so we have this kind of chilling, kind of cool sequence where um, I, I cannot emphasize enough. The, the production design of the sequence is, is a character unto itself. The, the dock, the soggy wet, uh, covered in, in thunder claps. Uh, there's lots of flash bulbs going off in the sequence. Lots of thunder and lightning and and uh, just so much wetness and, and, and dripping rain and stuff. There's a lovely texture to it. It's a really cool set. It's a very cool venue. Um, but you just have the setup of Jet Li doing some wonderful physical acting, showing genuine anger and grief over the loss of his brother who just died. And then Riggs and Murtaugh rolling up on him, and it it just it's a great setup where it's like, oh, he was dangerous before, but now he's like got the blood rage. So us, the audience, were like clenching our butts, like thinking to ourselves, oh shit, it's, this is gonna be this is gonna be violent. <laughs> like like whatever. Like we saw this guy fish hook people. We saw him break people's necks. We saw him choke an old man out. Uh, yeah, whatever, whatever this guy has in store for our heroes, it's going to be, it's going to be loud. It's going to be bloody. Um, as, a as Rick said in the very first lethal weapon, uh, we're going to get bloody on this Raj. In fact, you could have added that line, uh, preceding the fight. And I wouldn't be surprised at all if they shot that line. Uh, it's not in the film, but I, it came to mind. Um, anyway, I love the build up to the fight though, because we have this bit where our heroes go back and forth, um, just exchanging glances with each other and looking at Jet Li slowly get up from his brother's corpse and just stare daggers at them. And they're actually verbalizing back and forth. Like I think Murtaugh phrases it like he ain't, he ain't worth dying for Riggs. He, he ain't worth it. And he reasons that it's like, you know, you, you're going to be a dad. I'm going to be a granddad. Like we're getting too old for this shit. Like, is it really is it really worth risking our lives to bring this guy into custody right here and now? And 
they almost walk off for just a second. And then Riggs stops Raj and he, he looks at him and Mel Gibson does his lovely eye acting where he does that, that little squint thing that he does to emphasize a point and, and show that like kind of like animalistic intensity that he sometimes brings to his performances. And he says to him like, like, you know, that, that, that move he did earlier, like he, he, he took my gun apart with just one deft move. How, how did he do that, Raj? How did he do that? And, and Murtaugh reads between the lines and he, he, he looks at Riggs and he says to him, yeah, well, let's go ask him. And it, ha, I, I love this fight so much. Um, <laughs> like in case you couldn't, uh, this whole fight sequence is the, is the reason why this was the second DVD I ever bought in my whole life. Um, Cause I, I absolutely adore this, this fight sequence. Like it is, you know, it's two older guys who are kind of stiff and aren't are nowhere near experts at this craft, but they're working with an expert and the choreography is hard hitting. The atmosphere is basically perfect. Like like the again, the production design, the 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 torrential downpour and all the, the lightning going on. Like the lightning is actually used to great effect for being incorporated into editing and the sound is phenomenal um the music kicks in at exactly the right point um it's absent for about three quarters of the fight it only kicks in at exactly it chimes in at exactly the right point it, it precedes the fight with just a few percussive like chinese influence beats and then it dips out and all the music we get are just grunts and and delicious hit sounds, absolutely delightful, delicious hit sounds. Um, I'm not going to go over it beat for beat. I absolutely could because I have it like committed. To, it's in my bones. Like I, I have this fight like memorized. Um, but again, the the sound and and the atmosphere and the editing are really rock solid uh, for something that is not a technical wonder in ter- in terms of athleticism. Uh, shit, they did a terrific job. A wonderful showcase of, of everybody. Like, and and the way they they handle the two on one aspect of it is really neat. Where they do they do show that it adds a quite a lot of complications to to the things that Jet Li is trying to do. Where it's like, yeah, he he is supposed to be a much more calculating and technical fighter than either of them, but he is a smaller man, and there are two of them, and they do actually. They do actually incorporate that into the choreography. It's it's like one of those things you easily could overlook in favor of just hyping him up, like just making him look like goddamn Superman. But they have that bit where like he tries he tries to do a leap and kick on them and they just catch him in midair and throw him on the ground. It's like, yeah, there's two of them. They're both bigger than him. You, you can do that. Um, but yeah, I, I love how just savage and violent it is and how like how as artful a performer as Jet Li can be because like occasionally I'm critical of Jet Li's martial arts because he has so much goddamn wushu in him like like he is gong fu like he is wushu like like the way he moves even if you're asking him to do like straight up boxing or kickboxing or something there's a particular arc and dynamism to the to the positions that his body like automatically kind of conforms into that it, it just screams traditional wushu or traditional kung fu forms and stuff but here they kind of minimize it in form of just showing just nasty just nasty shit <laughs> like just nasty street fighting shit 
and the the interplay be- between all the different styles is is terrific where you get to see Riggs uh, Riggs is totally outclassed but he's he's cagey like like the this is where we get the multiple headbutts where he he counters having his shoulder dislocated and being tied up in a joint lock by just straight up launching his forehead into Jetley's face and it's like yeah it's like he's you you guys are tied up and and your limbs aren't free but your head is and that's all you got if you're willing go for it and the, this is the only instance i think in the whole franchise where the the shoulder dislocation is done to Riggs. like somebody just straight up does it to him against his will and uh the the sheer violence of it is is tremendous um, and I like that that Murtaugh gets gets his shots in. Um, I, I like that like he has a stiffness to him that is probably just intrinsic to to Danny Glover's capabilities uh, in in performing these kinds of scenes. But there's that bit where he's trapped on the ground and Jet Li keeps kicking him in the face as he's getting up, and it, it's just like one of those things where it's it's reflexive, where you, there's a logic to it, where it's like he's his having his bell rung and his body's natural response is to get up and get away from it. But all that's doing is leading him into the next hit. And it's like, it's repetitive, but it's like, yeah, that's not a place you want to be in. (laughs) Um, And of course the, uh, when the music kicks in though, is where like the violence level just shoots through the roof where the music comes in when uh, Jet Li and Mel Gibson are tied up. And Jet Li uh, grabs him by the throat, uh, so he's trying. He's attempting to do what uh, what he had done to the Hongs, uh, what he had done to the elder Hong uh, earlier in the film. Uh, so he's got him by essentially the Adam's apple, kind of. And uh, anyway, he uh, has Riggs in a chokehold, and the camera keeps rotating around them as Riggs first tries to. Uh, grab gently by uh, his his rat tail <laughs> um and then that's not working that's not doing it so he, he puts a thumb in Jet Li's eye and this is where the music starts kicking in and it, it escalates the drama and uh mel gibson all credit to mel gibson his uh choked out face like his suffocating face is beat red and looks like it, he looks like he is dying uh, it's it's pretty intense um anyway uh murtaugh counters this by picking up a goddamn rebar and impaling Jet Li with it, uh, which results in a delicious blood spray out out his back. So we actually get to see the rod penetrate him and go out his back. Um, this this is like probably the like the hardest R of the entire series, like the hardest R rating. Um, but Murtaugh gets knocked unconscious by getting kicked in the head and uh, I think he hits the back of his head on a steel pipe. Uh, so he's he's out, he's down. Um, but Riggs rushes in, uh, he catches his wind, and he grabs hold of the rebar, and he picks up Jet Li by the rebar that is impaling him. And he starts swinging him around. It's like, oh my god, you're ripping that man's insides apart. That is so... With a rusty rebar. <laughs> it's like, that is fucking savage. Um... But uh, the fight gets interrupted and concluded, by the way, uh, by the dock giving way and dropping both uh, Riggs and Wasing Ku into the water, uh, at which point Wasing Ku attempts to continue choking Martin Riggs underwater, at which point Riggs 
grabs hold of a AK-47 that is in an SUV that's at the bottom of the water that I presume is the same SUV that we saw Roger Yuan get killed in earlier. And he puts the, the assault rifle between himself and Jet Li and the music dips out exactly when he pulls the trigger and Wasing Ku is dead. And the music comes back and it's delightfully choreographed. So Wasing Ku is dead, but apparently a director mentioned um they did shoot an al- an alternative ending where uh, Jet Li pulls a, a slasher villain move and comes up out of the water for like one more round or something. Apparently, test audiences didn't buy it, so they didn't go with that. Um, anyway, uh, Riggs is trying to haul himself himself up out of the water, uh, but um, the dock further collapses on top of him, and he is sent to the bottom of the water. And Murtaugh wakes up and he can't find Riggs. And he's, he's wandering around the dock, uh, calling out to his partner. He can't find him. And we get a reprise of the willing. Uh, he, he starts calling out, will it to me, Riggs? Will it to me? And Danny Glover is just pacing about, covered in blood and water. And he keeps calling out, will it to me, Riggs? And uh, eventually he comes across uh, the part of the dock that's collapsed. And I guess he... It's either inferred that he and Martin Riggs have a psychic connection. I mean, it kind of makes sense. Like, these two guys are attached to the hip and they love each other. So it's like they have a special connection of some sort. So it's not super far-fetched. Like, like that they, I don't know, have some kind of like supernatural connection in that way. But anyway, he, he puts it together that Riggs is probably in the water somewhere. So he dives in and we get the last... Uh, Three, two, one, or one, two, three of the franchise, where uh, Murtog assists Riggs in lifting a stone block that's uh, pinning him to the bottom of the ocean. Uh, so he frees Riggs, and uh, you know we we both celebrate being alive and having the bad guys dead. Uh, cut to the cemetery uh, where Riggs uh, is at his wife uh, Victoria Lynn, I believe is her name, at her gravesite, and uh, he's talking to his dead wife's grave. Uh, about the fact that Lorna wants to get married and he, he's looking for advice. He doesn't know what to do. That's at this point that Leo appears. Uh, apparently he was tailing Riggs. And this is where uh, Leo tells him the story of Froggy. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure Kyle, my normal uh, co-host here at Catching Up on Cinema, isn't a big fan of the Froggy story. I happen to like it. Uh, it feels very Jewish. It, feel, it feels like a, just like, like one of those stories that i uh, Somebody tells you, and you're not entirely sure what's supposed to mean, but it's a story. Although this one does, this one does have relevance. You just have to really, really squint and like dig to find it. So anyway, Leo tells Riggs the story about Froggy, who apparently was his best friend in the world. It was an actual frog. Uh, his mom left him, so he used to kiss the frog and pretend like maybe it'll turn into a princess or something, and I can have some sort of female presence in my life. Uh, didn't work out um and then one day froggy jumped out of his his uh basket in his bike and he accidentally ran over his best friend froggy with his bike so froggy died because of him and he felt terrible about it It was the worst thing it was his best friend and it was the worst thing that ever happened to him so leo concludes the story and he i think he says to himself like remember this is joe pesci he says to himself in, in like the more like the only heartfelt <laughs> instance he has in the whole franchise like yeah I you know I just thought maybe 
that might be relevant. And again, you kind of have to like squint and like cock your cock your head to the side and really dig for the meaning there. But he concludes his thought by saying, "You're not better friends than Froggy." He's referring to Riggs and Murtog. You're just different. And the meaning, I guess, from that is that something bad happened. You lost somebody, but there will be other somebodies who. It's not that. It's not that you're discarding the the love and appreciation you had for the people that are gone it's it's just that's life you you move on and you find new people who as he said are not better they're not better than your dead wife like Lorna's not better than your dead wife she's just your new wife and uh Riggs uh, he has a fun line where uh, he gets a beep that uh, Lorna is going into labor uh, so he and Leo have to speed off from the cemetery to go to the hospital uh, but he's, I think he says something to his his, uh, his wife's grave, like something lines of, along the lines of like, uh, you picked one hell of a weird angel, but uh, I, I, got, I, I got it. I got the meaning. <laughs> and then he takes off to go to the hospital. Uh, we have a really farcical sequence where uh, Rene Russo as Lorna is in labor. She's on a gurney and uh, she's, she is pissed off and needing to get married before she's willing to have the baby. Uh, apparently, uh, there's a fun factoid uh, on the commentary. Uh, there's a lady who's uh, like hauling an IV uh, cart, and uh, Lorna grabs the she grabs the IV and drags the old lady alongside her gurney uh, for a stretch of the hallway. And that lady has exactly one line where uh, Leo comments that what's what's that smell? And she says, "I was on my way to the bathroom, and then she grabbed me." Apparently, that lady wrote Richard Donner a letter. Uh, telling him thank you for uh, f- for giving me one line of for giving me a speaking role in your film. Uh, I used the money to buy my family a refrigerator, <laughs> so so she's the fridge lady. Um, anyway, Lorna is demanding a minister. She needs to get married, or at least feel that she's getting married uh, before she is willing to have the baby. Uh, she shrieks at Leo, by the way, uh, to get somebody, a minister, anybody. Uh, Leo instead gets a rabbi. Um, and this feller, uh, he's he's not sure if he's like being made a fool of, but eventually he, he says the words that she needs him to say. Uh, I think he's doing like a Christian or Catholic ceremony words for a marriage as opposed to a Jewish one or a Yiddish one. Um, and he says the words, uh, Leo steals a urine cup from a patient who is apparently an, an actor, an African-American fellow who has worked with Richard Donner uh, several times. Uh, they take the urine cup, the emptied urine cup, by the way, um, and they step on it and give a, a hearty mazel tov, uh, at the celebration of their faux uh, marriage ceremony uh, in front of the delivery room. Uh, so Riggs thanks Leo, gives him a big hug, finally like gives him like an attaboy, basically tells him like, I love you, man. You're, he doesn't say it, but it's implied that it's like, yeah, this is me, like, genuinely appreciating you being a part of my life, Leo. Thanks. Um, so we get to see the babies. We get to see baby Riggs and baby Butters, uh, cute little babies. Uh, and then the f- end of the movie is uh, all of the Murtaugh's, uh, Leo, uh, Lorna, Riggs, um, they're all posed in front of a part of the hospital. Uh, the captain... Uh, Steve Kane, our uh, our director's cousin, by the way, uh, he shows up with some gifts uh, from the department for the new babies and the new moms. 
Uh, and <laughs> in a last minute bit of exposition, a little bit of housekeeping, uh, he has just some random, like not random, but like very deliberate lines of dialogue to, to Murtaugh, informing him that uh, the Hongs uh, have been granted asylum by the INS. So in case anybody in the audience was wondering what happened to that lovely Chinese family that Roger Murtaugh was illegally housing, they're fine. <laughs> Everybody's fine that's still alive. Um, so we get a bit where Leo is pissed off at a uh, uh, disposable Kodak uh, vending machine, which the director swears up and down was not a sponsor for the film. Not sure I believe that. Um, and uh, yeah. Uh, a doctor is recruited to take a family photo of everybody uh, that I mentioned, including Leo, uh, who poses up front. And uh, they're, they're asked, are you guys all friends? And they yell at him, at the doctor, no, we're all fa No, we're all family. Uh, and then we take the photo and we snap. Uh, by the way, the last piece of music that plays before the end credits uh, is like a, a, a triumphant symphonic rendition of Leo's theme that wow. Wah, 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 is the last <laughs> the last score that plays at the conclusion of the entire Lethal Weapon franchise. That's that's kind of cute. Um, so they take the photo and it, there's a flash and we proceed to the end credits, which consists of a uh, a roaming like photo album. So it's a it's like a, a photo album that the camera is is uh, Ken Burnsing over. And the pages get turned from time to time to cycle in new photos, but it's like an actual physical photo album of coat of like Polaroids uh, of all the major uh, cast members and uh, crew members. So we get like photos of Joel Silver and uh, I forget the name of the casting director, but uh, Richard Donner absolutely loves her. Marion Doherty, I think is her name. Um, and it's to me, this is a terrific way to end a franchise, like to, to pay tribute to everybody who hung around and made these damn movies um it's the kind of thing that i would do if i ended up if i made a movie like it's it's super cute and why can't we be friends is is the is the closing song that plays over the end credit it's, it's very cozy warm and you know it's it's fitting to end the series on we're family as, as the last dialogue spoken in the film um but yeah it's really cool i i really think it's a neat way to end the movie and the franchise. Um, I have read a time and time again that a Lethal Weapon 5 has been considered. Uh, Mel Gibson, in fact, was uh, asked if he was involved. I think he was actually considered uh, as a director for the film. Um, it was a responsibility, I guess, that he asked to take take on because Richard Donner has passed away uh, pretty recently within the past couple of years uh, very unfortunate but I do know that Lethal Weapon 5 has been kicked around uh, as far back as the mid 90s like I said Lethal Weapon 4 and 5 were conceived as a, a, a two for one basically um, but I don't need it man uh, I really like this as the end point you know Riggs and Lorna become a, a they get married they have a kid Murtag becomes a grandpa. They both get old, and this, to me, it's like this is their last great adventure. Like, we had a story that actually attempted, maybe not in the best way possible, but it actually attempted for, for a bit to address the fact that they're getting older. And then 
had a grand finale where they took on a physical challenge that neither of them should have been able to overcome and they they overcome the odds it in a way that they it, in a way that felt like escalated and and important and meaningful and not only that we got an entire movie kind of dedicated to the characters because as i said the movie is nowhere near dismissive of the villains but it's 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 almost played up for laughs how how uninvolved our heroes are in in the the scheming and the machinations of the villains it's like no we're 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 here to stop them but it's not especially important like the the like the logistics or the why of what they're doing it's like like we're in opposition to them but we we got a whole ass movie of other stuff going on with these characters but anyway as i said at the top my ranking of lethal weapon 4 is uh, it's second best in the whole series. I I really like it. I mean, some of the stuff with butters, like the the homophobic stuff, it it is it is dated. It, it's a little uncomfortable. Some of the the, the Chinese slurs and and like not not especially PC dialogue, especially from the Riggs character, is a little uncomfortable at times. But on the whole, I think I gave plenty of evidence to to support like the structural integrity of the movie like it's a well put together movie and on top of that it's shot well the action is top notch um and if you care about or love these characters it's just more of them and they haven't lost a step and that's how i'd like to keep it is every everybody that everybody who who had been in a part of the franchise didn't feel any less than how they started by the time you got to the end of this one and I don't, I don't need to see. A, I don't want to get to the part, the point, uh, in the timeline for these actors and and these characters where they start to feel disingenuous or not right. And I have to imagine, like as talented a director as Mel Gibson has been proven to be over the years, uh, I think the absence of Richard Donner would really be noticeable. Uh, so I. I really hope we don't get a Lethal Weapon 5. I'm very happy with this being the conclusion of the whole thing. Uh, but yeah, that was our masterclass on the Lethal Weapon series, all directed by Richard Donner and all starring Mel Gibson and Danny Glover. So thanks uh, if you if you had the stamina uh, to keep up and, and, and listen to all of our thoughts about all these movies. Um, but yeah, uh, in the meantime, if you'd like to catch up on any of our other Catching Up on Cinema content, you can find all of that collected on our website at catchinguponcinema.com. Uh, you can also find us on the social medias in the form of the Instagram at Catching Up on Cinema, as well as the Twitter at Catching Cinema. Uh, that's also X, Twitter slash X, excuse me. Uh, and also, uh, you can find the podcast on pretty much every platform you can imagine, including Bitcade. Uh, so fucking Google it. And with that being said, thank you so much for listening, and we will catch you next time.